so go up to Nantucket, find the man who can suck it. You better do it now before you kick the bucket. You better do it now before you kick the bucket. You better do it now before you kick the bucket. Joe Biden just pardoned thousands of Americans charged with marijuana possession. He is going to decriminalize marijuana. Late breaking news. What? Why? Why, why are you doing it, Joe? Why, why would you want to decriminalize marijuana? Jesus. Uh, one of the world's leading experts on Ukraine. I'm being sarcastic, by the way. He promised he would get the ball rolling on decriminalizing marijuana. I don't know what took so long. I mean, who's against decriminalization of marijuana? One of the world's leading experts on Ukraine, Professor Ivan Kachatanovsky, joins us in an hour. We'll be discussing the war in Ukraine. Professor Ivan Kachanovsky has written extensively on Ukraine and Russia. He teaches at the School of Political Studies and Conflict Studies and Human Rights Program at the University of Ottawa. That would be up there in Canada. Welcome to the mop-up for October 6, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 72 degrees and sunny. Stocks uh, closed down today, about 1%. Office hours and hours this Friday, it starts at 8 p.m. Please join us. 8 p.m. We go until 8, 9 the next day. I host the first hour, then the community takes over, and it's fantastic. Meet better people. I promise you, you will meet better people. Come to office hours and hours. All you need to do is go to my website. The link is there. Or sign up for my newsletter. My newsletter comes out every Friday night at exactly 6 p.m. It contains the link for office hours, which starts at 8 Sign up for my newsletter. It's fantastic. We have a YouTube channel, and please subscribe to it. We have two uh, audiences right now watching us live, one in our Zoom room and one on YouTube. We do this show live, so thank you to the mods for keeping both chat rooms free of trolls. Like I said, the stock market was down about 1%. Today, the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average were both down a little more than 1%. The Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates this year to fight, they say, inflation. Now, some say there's nothing the Federal Reserve can do to combat this type of inflation. Most inflation, most of this inflation, I say, is due to supply chain issues, the war in Ukraine, climate catastrophe, covid OPEC raising prices, and of course, other price gouging monopolies besides OPEC. Don't forget, rent is one third of inflation. You bring down the price of rent through rent control, you bring down inflation. But when the Fed raises interest rates, that means mortgages go up. U.S. mortgage rates are now at a 16-year high, which means it's gotten very expensive to borrow money to buy an apartment or refinance the mortgage you already have on your apartment. That's why last month the number of applications for new mortgages dropped 14 percent. 
people are no longer looking to borrow money to buy an apartment or a home. It's gotten too expensive. Home prices now, you would think, would come down, right? That's what you would expect. Uh, but not really. They're not coming down significantly. I'll explain that in a second. But more importantly, renters. What about people who rent? Half the people in America who rent live at or below the poverty line. They're not in the market to buy a home. They're looking to rent, and rents are going up almost exponentially. And raising interest rates, as I see it, is going to do nothing to solve the shortage of housing. If anything, it's only going to exacerbate the shortage of housing. We need about 5 million new housing units in this country. The government isn't really building new units. The Inflation Reduction Act that just got passed addresses some of this problem, but not, not enough. So it's still left to investors, realtors like Jared Kushner to build more homes. And how do they build more homes and apartments? They borrow money. And if it costs too much to borrow, they don't build. So the price of homes will go down a little. But private equity, companies like Blackstone, swoop in and buy up all these apartments, all these homes. They did it in Spain. Two years ago, at the height of COVID, Blackwater became Spain's largest landlord, owning more than 100,000 rental assets. You want to talk about an absentee landlord? Blackstone doesn't even live in Spain. So when you own rental assets, you can leave a couple of those units empty and write it off on your taxes. There are just as many empty apartment buildings in New York City as there are homeless people. And the people who own these empty buildings just write it off on their taxes. And most importantly, wherever there isn't rent control, you are free to pass along higher interest rates to your tenants. Rent is going to go up along with Jerome Powell's interest rates. Inflation is a serious, serious problem, too serious a problem to be left to Jerome Powell and the other central bankers who caused this mess. If there's one thing the far right hates, it's boycotts. Alex Jones, for example, Infowars, right? Alex Jones, he hates it when people threaten to boycott companies who sponsor his fire hose of lies he calls a news program. And yet this week, Alex Jones announced he was boycotting the sentencing phase of the defamation lawsuit filed against him by survivors of the Sandy Hook shooting. There are so many defamation lawsuits filed against Alex Jones. Now, this one was initiated by one of the FBI agents who investigated the shooting, as well as eight families whose loved ones were killed, or as Jones called them, crisis actors. You see, Alex Jones said the shootings were fake. And these family members and the FBI agents said because of Alex Jones, they were subject to nearly a decade of death and rape threats. Jones lost that defamation case by default. He refused to hand over any evidence. So he lost. And now they're sentencing him. But he says he's done apologizing 
for putting a target on the backs of the parents and the police officers involved in Sandy Hook. It's a boycott, he says, but the truth is he's just too chicken shit to testify. That's all it is. But he's calling it a boycott. Tim Cook is the CEO of Apple and he's gay. Last week, he had an audience with the Pope. During the audience, Pope Francis said he would start officiating same-sex marriages if someone over at Apple could get his mother effing notifications to turn off during confession. Tim Cook gave an interview in which he said computer coding needs to be taught in elementary schools. You know, Tim Cook, there are a lot of things that should be taught in our elementary schools. You know, like how to turn off your iPhone and read a book, perhaps engage in the real world. Funny thing about Tim Cook and Apple, their offices are in Cupertino, California, but they are headquartered in Reno. So they don't pay any taxes in California, which is why the school system in Cupertino, where Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak learned math, they can't afford computer classrooms. Cupertino, where the offices for Apple are, Cupertino schools are closing because there's no money. Voters are rejecting uh, tax uh, raises. They, they, the voters are being convinced not to raise taxes. And Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, is now using the island of Jersey as a tax haven where billions of profits are beyond the grasp of our IRS, the state of California, or the school system of Cupertino, which needs the money. There would be no Apple, Tim Cook, if Steve Wozniak had not been the beneficiary of the Cupertino public school systems. And Tim Cook is busy saying, you know, they should be teaching coding in our elementary schools. How about you just pay your effing share of taxes, okay? Instead of telling us how to educate our kids, why don't you just pay your effing taxes? Well, so long as the royal family is doing okay, I'm okay. King Charles's coronation is officially set for June of next year. Because after 10 days of bearing his mum, the one thing everyone's, everyone wants more of is to see the royal family more. We want more of the royal family. The planet is dying. A Cretan was just elected prime minister of Great Britain, and she's deficit financing tax cuts for the wealthy based on an economic theory discredited 40 years ago. But let's clog the streets of London and spend millions we don't have to celebrate the world's most dysfunctional family. The only difference between the royal family and the Manson family is King Charles doesn't have a swastika carved into his forehead. That's because his uncle Edward VII did that. And that's the real reason Edward VII had to give up the throne. He carved a swastika into his forehead. Edward VII was a Nazi sympathizer, as were a lot of members of the aristocracy in the lead up to and after World War II. Well, King Charles's face is now supposed to be on the money, but the exchequer announced this week they're waiting another two years before Charles's face will grace British banknotes, probably because the pound is already taking such a big hit this year the last thing it needs is a rancid comb over and a bull elephant's ears. For the time being, Queen Elizabeth's face will continue to appear on British banknotes, 
But because she's no longer the sovereign, they are replacing her crown with a head full of maggots, dirt, and worms. According to Buckingham Palace, the royal family received more than 50,000 letters right after the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Some of the letters were condolences, but the vast preponderance of letters were in response to an ad on Craigslist for a slightly stained and rather sticky leather throne cushion. I guess they're selling off pieces of the estate. Queen Anne, not Queen Anne, Princess Anne. Princess Anne is the hardest working royal. She performs 400 official duties each year. On Wednesday, she came to New York City and rode the Staten Island Ferry. Many people ask, why would Princess Anne travel thousands of miles just to ride the Staten Island Ferry? And the answer is really quite simple. She's boning Pete Davidson. The king of Staten Island is boning Princess. That is, okay, that Photoshop didn't quite work. Seriously, uh, Princess Anne went to Staten Island yesterday and then she was in Manhattan all day today. Why is she in New York City? Well, after two weeks of marching behind her mom's coffin, she misses the smell of horse shit. Welcome to New York City, Princess Anne. The great thing about Princess Anne visiting New York City is it's the only time when us New Yorkers can say, I don't care if you're the Queen of England's daughter. Now get the fuck out of my way. They're actually saying it to the Queen of England's daughter. Every day I say to somebody, I don't care if you're the Queen of England's daughter. Get the fuck out of my way. This time I get a chance to actually say that to the Queen of uh, England's daughter, Princess Anne, the hardest working royal in show business. Meanwhile, back in Buckingham Palace, Prince Charles thought he was being visited. Whoa. Let me get that back up again, is what he said. There we go. A little better. Meanwhile, back in Buckingham Palace, Prince Charles thought he was being visited by the ghost of his mother, but it turned out to be the cadaverous, worm-infested Prime Minister, Liz Truss. And there's a piece of work. We'll say a piece of work. We'll be polite. The new prime minister told the new king, forget about going to Egypt for the 2022 United Nations Climate Change Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh. Uh, freak out. El-Sheikh. Say Sheikh. Sharm el-Sheikh. Freak out. King Charles won't be making a speech on climate change. Uh, she won't let him. Uh, the one thing that King Charles gets to do that's of any import, and Liz Truss stops him from doing it, which explains why Charles has taken to calling her mommy. I don't know what it is about women named Liz who won't allow Charles to do a blessed thing. Now, instead of gas pipes that leak into the Baltic Sea, Charles can ramble on and on about what's really important, pens that leak into the Baltic Sea. Meanwhile, activists say they have no idea why Coca-Cola Branded the world's top polluter by leading environmental groups, Coca-Cola, because of its plastic bottles, is ending up in the ocean. It's listed as one of the sponsors, for some reason, of next month's UN Climate Conference. Coca-Cola produces 120 billion plastic bottles a year, all of which are made from fossil fuels. Not only that, 
Coca-Cola, the drink, its main ingredient is diesel fuel. So climate activists want to know why the UN Climate Conference would allow Coca-Cola to be one of the sponsors. Well, obviously, if the UN Climate Conference wants to be free from greenwashing, they should only accept sponsorships from corporations that work as mindful stewards of the planet. Corporations like nobody. They don't exist. Capitalism, by its very nature, destroys nature. You're worried about Coca-Cola sponsoring your 27th climate summit? 27 climate summits and things are getting exponentially worse. Maybe after 27 climate summits, you should try something else. Maybe stop with the summits. Maybe stop talking and do something. The CEO of Shell Oil said this week that governments should tax energy firms to help the poor. How about instead of taxing energy firms, we just shut down all these energy firms to help everyone? Scientists now say the Pacific Ocean is shrinking by one inch every year and that eventually the Earth will have a new supercontinent that combines America with Asia called Amasia. You know what I think this is? I think China is slowly and imperceptibly invading Taiwan and then America. Anyway, we have to do something to stop this. Not the, the fuge, fusion of America with Asia. The name, Amasia, I don't like it. How about As America? Asia America? Uh, forget it. I had some other ones, but I'm in a bad mood. Uh, moving on. OPEC announced this week that it will be cutting production of oil by 2 million barrels a day. OPEC says they've done a lot of thinking. They realize we have to get off fossil fuels to save this planet, and we're doing our job by making less of it available to save the planet. I'm sorry, I read that wrong. OPEC says it is uh, raising prices, so Russia will have more money to continue its war in Ukraine. I read that wrong. It's almost a year ago that Alec Baldwin accidentally discharged a live round into the cinematographer on the set of Rust. While Baldwin and three other producers of that movie are expected to be charged with some sort of crime, perhaps even murder, we do have some good news. Production of Rust will continue. They're going to finish the movie Rust because that's... We all know that's what cinematographer Helena Hutchins would have wanted. Probably not as much as she would have wanted a union crew that would check to make sure the guns weren't loaded. I think she would have wanted that more, but I'm sure she would want the movie Rust to be finished. And this is great news. We will finally get to see Rust. I, I can't wait. And Baldwin... Even better news, Baldwin and the producers reached a settlement with Helena Hutchins' husband. They will finish production of Rust, and Helena Hutchins, the cinematographer, her husband, will get an executive producer credit. Nothing, nothing like an executive producer credit to make things right. When asked if he's planning to executive produce any other movies... Hutchins said it's way too early to think about marrying another woman and then having her killed on a set. 
Nice. Michelle Obama has a new book out. It's called The Light We Carry, and she's doing a book tour. We'll, and on the book tour, she'll be interviewed by Ellen DeGeneres and union-busting producer Tyler Perry. Isn't that... But the Obamas are so in touch with humanity They and, and the working man. Who, who loves the working man more and the working woman more than Tyler Perry and Ellen DeGeneres? Michelle says Ellen and Tyler Perry can't make all the stops on her book tour. Michelle says she's hoping to replace them with whoever is responsible for the Nord Stream pipeline explosions. The... Uh, Midterms are now only 32 days away, 32 days away. The Democrats, according to the latest polling, are showing a three-point advantage on the generic congressional ballot. So they may be able to hold on to the, the House. Meanwhile, George Bush, George W. Bush, is responsible for one million dead Iraqis, the destruction of capitalism. Capitalism died because of him in 2008. Uh, also, he destroyed New Orleans and, you know, the World Trade Center. Let's be honest. He didn't read those intelligence reports. The World Trade Center wouldn't have come down if Al Gore were president. We know that. It's impolite to say that, but it's true. It's also impolite to state the obvious truth that George W. Bush should be frog marched before the International Criminal Court for crimes against humanity, like torture. But that's not going to happen because America is not a signatory to the International Criminal Court. But more importantly, it's not going to happen because Michelle Obama and George W. Bush share mints at state funerals. They always hand each other a mint and sit next to each other at state funerals. And Ellen DeGeneres sat next to George W. Bush at a Dallas Cowboys game. So he's a mixed bag. Yeah, he's killed a million Iraqis, but Ellen likes him, Michelle likes him, so he's a mixed bag. And he's opining on politics. The worst president in American history, worse than Donald Trump, the, the United States of Amnesia, or at least the Republican Party, is listening to George W. Bush. He's endorsing candidates. This week, George W. Bush did a fundraiser for Colorado's Joe Odea, who was running against Democratic incumbent Michael Bennett. During a speech in Denver this week, Bush said, Joe, Joe Odea is a great guy. Would I lie to you? That's what he said. Would I lie to you? No. Speaking of Denver, Denver Riggleman is a former Republican congressman who has been helping out on the January 6th committee. He also has a new book, and in it he says he's worried that several GOP Congress people, several members of the GOP, have serious cognitive issues. Wow. That's startling. He specified Louis Gohmert, Really? And Paul Gosar, Arizona Congressman Paul Gosar, has cognitive issues? I This is shocking. Uh, what about Clarence Thomas and, and Ginny Thomas? You left them out of the book. You left out Ginny Thomas. Sarah Palin, no, no cognitive issues there. J.R. Majewski, Donald Trump, uh, 
Kevin McCarthy, who was supposed to be, this is not me, this is an article in Politico that says he may be the dumbest man in Washington, D.C., which means he's going to be the next speaker if the Republicans win the House. Uh, Carrie Lake, who's running for governor of Arizona, and uh, Herschel Walker. What about Herschel Walker's cognitive issues? All left out of the book. Hmm, interesting. By the way, this is just in the uh, woman who claims uh, Herschel Walker paid for her abortion, has now said uh, they also share a child. That's sweet. That's great. Uh, a new study shows that a much larger number of Republicans have died from COVID than Democrats dying from COVID. More Republicans have died from uh, COVID than Democrats Hmm. Um, study suggests the reason for this could be that Republicans are an apocalyptic death cult who view their own demise as a sweet release from their own fetid existence. Uh, that's not what the study says. Uh, that's what I say. You don't get vaccinated or wear a mask. Uh, you're going to die from COVID. Donald Trump new book out, The Divider, by Maggie Haberman, says that Donald Trump would prank call, this was in the White House, that he would prank call Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, claiming he was, well, this is true, claiming he was a Washington Post reporter, and then when he got her on the line, would tell her that her dead husband should burn in hell. That's how the President of the United States filled his days uh, phony phone calls to Congresswoman Debbie Dingell. Not even funny ones to Debbie Dingell. I mean, if you're going to call Debbie Dingell, the first thing you say is, Hi, I'm calling from Amazon Fresh, and your berries are ready, Mrs. Dingell. You didn't order berries, Mrs. Dingell? It says on the order, Dingleberries. Are you sure Dingleberries isn't something like that? Okay. Well, you're listening to The David Feldman Show. DavidFeldmanShow.com. The Republicans can only run on two things, law and order and uh, Christian nationalism. That's all they have to offer voters. If you're a white Christian, you have a reason to vote for the Republicans. Here is Kellyanne Conway, who is a great family woman. Her husband is leaving her. They're getting a divorce. They hate each other. But She's a good person, and she's claiming that Christians, her type of Christian, really has it rough in America. They're also very religious, and they, they see a Democratic Party that's openly hostile to religion most days. They can't even give you thoughts and prayers when there's a tragedy. It's only thoughts now. Yes, we can't even give thoughts and prayers now. We're so anti-religion in America. All we can do is give you thoughts. But, you know, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, he gives you thoughts, he gives you prayers, and he even gives you the guns to uh, kill each other with. Kellyanne continued on another show to talk about how rough Christians have it, white racist Christians, how difficult it is to be a white racist Christian here in America. 
people are afraid to make the sign of a cross before the meal in public. Yeah, they're afraid yeah. to express who they are. Yeah. They actually think their religion could get them canceled now, not just their politics. I, and think, think about that. Yes, your religion is going to get you canceled. No, it's not. It's your religion, Kellyanne Conway, Mike Pence's religion, that's doing the canceling. Canceling transgender youth, canceling same-sex marriage, canceling abortion. We don't mind you making the sign of a cross. It's burning a cross on people's lawns. That's the problem we have. Well, Newt Gingrich is defending Herschel Walker because Newt Gingrich is a good family man who has only been married three times, served divorce papers to his first wife while she was dying from cancer, impeached uh, Bill Clinton while his current wife, Callista, was blowing him in the speaker's office. That's true. And he's a good Christian, Newt Gingrich, good man. And he's forgiving. He's from Georgia. Herschel Walker is running for Senate in Georgia. He's defending Herschel Walker. I talked to Herschel about this this morning, and I've known Herschel a good while. Uh, I think he's a remarkable person. I think he's the most important Senate candidate in the country because he'll do more to change the Senate just by the sheer presence, by his confidence, by his deep commitment to Christ, by the degree to which he is. You know, he's been through a long, tough period. He had a lot of concussions coming out of football. He suffered PTSD. <laughs> yes, his deep commitment to Christ and concussions all in the same sentence. I have nothing against religion. I have nothing against Christ. What I do have a problem with is people suffering from CTE with deep mental illness, people who are violent and uh, say they're against abortion. Then when they have an abortion or pay for an abortion, they ask for forgiveness when they don't extend the same courtesy to transgender youth, you know, homosexuals, the LGBTQ community, uh, you know, he wants forgiveness, but he doesn't give it himself. He hides like all these people like Kellyanne, Greg Abbott, Mike Pence, Newt Gingrich. They hide behind religion the same way they hide behind the flag. Uh, they're not patriotic and they're not religious. They manipulate uh, good Christians into thinking that they're Christian and, and they're not. Uh, Herschel Walker uh, has CTE. He has a history of violence. And like most Republicans, he refuses to accept the fact that he is severely, severely deranged. Instead of getting mental health treatment, these people like Kellyanne Conway, Mike Pence, Newt Gingrich, what they do is they say, I'm not mentally ill. I'm a Republican or I'm a Christian or I'm an Orthodox Jew. But they don't deal with their mental illness. They hide behind religion and their political party. Here is Herschel Walker pretty much saying that he had this revelation in a mental health institution. He was institutionalized and he refused to get treatment. Instead, he turned to Christ. As I started seeing the doctors and stuff, I decided to go to the hospital. I don't know if y'all knew that. I went to this hospital, and I remember sitting in this hospital going, whoa, these people here are crazy. <laughs> these people here are crazy, and I'm not like them. I'm not like them. 
And all of a sudden, as I was sitting there, I realized that we all fall short of the glory of God. That I'm identical to them, but what I'm doing is, I got full of myself, because I was winning everything, I was doing everything. That even though I was speaking God's name, but I was not living God's life. Right. I'm not uh, crazy. I'm not crazy. Those people are crazy. I'm not crazy. And then he speaks the glory of God's name and runs for office. He's not crazy. He's a Republican who believes in Jesus. Look, I don't have sponsors, so I'll just say the truth. I'll just speak the truth. These people are clinically deranged. They are clinically deranged, and nobody can get mental health care in this country. It's impossible. You have to go out of pocket. So instead of going out of pocket, instead of paying for whatever mental health treatment, like, you know, Ginny Thomas, even Jamie Raskin said after she testified before the January 6th committee this week, deranged. These people are deranged. Instead of going to a shrink, getting medication, they turn to religion and the Republican Party. It is a party of very sick people. Thank God we have Ron DeSantis, good man, who, when it comes to things like Herschel Walker and Hurricane Ian, he had some important things to say. Uh, You don't have to politicize every single tragedy in this country. Right. You don't need, thank you, Ron DeSantis, you don't need to politicize every single tragedy in this country. Just the tragedy of Venezuelan migrants walking 50 days to America with no food, no shelter, no clothing, and then tricking them into going to Martha's Vineyard. That's something you can politicize. And if, you know, if your side wins the House, you can politicize the tragedy of Hunter Biden, who is an addict, clearly suffering from mental health issues. Politicize that, right? But don't politicize dead babies. No, don't leave leave Herschel Walker alone. It's wrong to politicize dead babies. Yeah. Uh, Dana Loesch is a good Christian. She's all about forgiveness. Uh, She hosted uh, the NRA television network until it went out of business. Uh, She was a big, uh, big executive over at the NRA. And uh, she's all about forgiving. She is. Uh, She uh, defended the U.S. Marines who were videotaped urinating on the corpses of dead Taliban fighters 10 years ago. She said, I would do it, too. I don't think they did anything wrong. That's Dana Loesch. She is all about Christian forgiveness. And she's opposed to abortion. She doesn't like the idea of dead babies. But on her podcast... Yesterday, she explained why she still supports Herschel Walker, who paid $700 for dead babies. So I don't care if Herschel Walker paid to abort endangered baby eagles. I want control of the Senate. If the Daily Beast story is true, you're telling me Walker used his money to reportedly pay some skank for an abortion and Warnock wants to use all of our monies to pay a whole bunch of skanks for abortions. 
And yes, when they're used predominantly over 99% of birth control and it's my taxpayer dollars, you have invited me up in your business and I will use whatever Descript I would like to. Thank you. What a sweet woman. So it doesn't change anything for me. What a sweet woman. That would be Dana Loesch. Rick Scott ran America's largest for uh, profit, ran America's largest for profit healthcare company, but he had a quit after he was caught defrauding Medicare and Medicaid. Senator Rick Scott, uh, when he ran this healthcare company, uh, the Department of Justice fined his company $1.7 billion. It was the largest healthcare fraud settlement in U.S. history. After that, he had to go into politics because nobody would trust him in business. And he became governor of Florida. He defrauded Medicare and Medicaid in the Republican Party. That means you're qualified to become governor of Florida. Now he's senator from Florida. He's an idiot. He's in charge of the Republican Senate campaign committee. He's blown through close to $200 million that he's wasted. Mitch McConnell has stopped talking to him. McConnell thinks he's an idiot because he is an idiot, but he's still in charge of getting Republicans elected to the Senate. Here he is on Hugh Hewitt's television show defending Herschel Walker. Is Herschel Walker's campaign uh, damaged by the abortion story in the Daily Beast or the angry tweets by his son? Oh, look, this is just textbook um, 101 for the Democrats. But they know they're going to lose. Herschel Walker's running a good race. He's a great candidate. Um, Raphael Warnick is Joe Biden. Uh, and, you know, it's just this lies, cheat, and smear. That's what they, the Democrats do. They did it to, to Brett Kavanaugh. They did it to Clarence Thomas. They're doing it to Herschel Walker. But he's going to win. This is what the Democrats do. This is what the Democrats do. They did it to Brett Kavanaugh. Only... 4,000 phone calls with tips to the FBI of rape allegations, just 4,000 that were uninvestigated by the FBI. And Ginny Thomas's husband, Clarence Thomas, more uh, complaints besides Anita Hill, and uh, they weren't investigated. Herschel Walker, this is what the Democrats do. They just destroy people's names for no reason. Well, Herschel Walker uh, is probably going to be forgiven by most Republicans in Georgia, but he's down about 12 percent in the polls because some Republicans find dead babies a little uh, hypocritical. And not everybody is as forgiving of abortion as Dana Loesch, Rick Scott. Uh, Some people are true to their beliefs. People like, oh, Doug Mastriano is unhappy. I would assume he's unhappy with Herschel Walker. Here is what Doug Mastriano, when he was a state senator, he's now running for governor of Pennsylvania, when he was a state senator, he was asked if women who get abortions should be charged with murder. 
Would that woman who decided to have an abortion, which would be considered an illegal abortion, be charged with murder? Okay, let's go back to the basic question there. Is that a human being? Is that a little boy or girl? If it is, it deserves equal protection on the law. So you're saying yes? Yes, I am. Wow. But not, not Herschel Walker. The woman who he gave $700 to, she should be charged with murder, but not Herschel Walker. Uh, Herschel is a good Christian, and he asks for Christian forgiveness, but he's not getting forgiveness from Christian, Christian being his son, Christian Walker. My intention is don't lie about your life at the expense of me, my mom, and all of the people that you've affected throughout your life. You don't get to pretend you're some moral family guy. You don't get to pretend all these things. Talk policy, talk normal, do not lie. I mean, I lie. Let's not lie. Get babies. Sickening. Donald Trump never lies. Uh, Here he is. Uh, giving a speech yesterday to Hispanics and being very humble because that's who he is. He's a very humble truth teller. Remember a very famous pollster, very well-known, John McLaughlin came to my office just prior to the play coming in. He said, sir, if George Washington and Abraham Lincoln came alive from the dead and they formed a president vice president team, you would beat them by 40%. That's how good our numbers were. Wow. If George Washington uh, came alive and met Donald Trump, he'd say, yeah, I like this guy. Racist, loves money, good guy. Uh, Yeah. There's one thing Republicans hate, and that is trial lawyers. They hate lawsuits. They they want tort reform. They want to put caps on lawsuits. Greg Abbott, for example, when he was uh, attorney general of Texas, he introduced caps on what you could get in civil damages. The Republicans hate lawsuits. They hate trial lawyers. So in order for them to sue it must take it must take something really egregious to get somebody like oh i don't know marjorie taylor green to want to clog up our courts here she is threatening a lawsuit yes i've already talked to an attorney i, I spoke with him last week john because i believe these these are uh it's it's a complete violation of my freedom of speech. I was a private citizen and I'm owed damages. They have no right to do this to me. Um, I just need to find out how many people I need to name on lawsuits and, and the social media companies. I've had enough of it. You know, I'm the only sitting member of Congress that had my personal account permanently banned by Twitter for so-called COVID misinformation. You've also been stripped of all your committee assignments, Marjorie Taylor Greene, by a vote of Congress that included about 11 Republicans because of your uh, incendiary tweets and speeches where you encourage people to be violent against Democrats and poll watchers. The House of Representatives stripped you of all your committee assignments. So you're suing, uh, and you must be upset with Twitter for somebody like you who's against 
frivolous lawsuits, this must be uh, pretty, pretty important. Uh, Donald Trump is also against frivolous lawsuits. And uh, he's always been the victim. He's been victimized by tens of thousands of frivolous lawsuits. So he would never file a frivolous lawsuit. On Monday, he sued CNN, seeking $475 million in damages. He's accusing CNN of defamation, trying to destroy his reputation and making it impossible for him to run for president again. And here is Jenna Ellis, his old attorney. She uh, was a member of the, the team back in 2020 that challenged the legitimacy of the 2020 presidential election results. Here she is uh, defending President Trump's lawsuit. This is Jenna Ellis. We all know the bottom line here is that his complaint is absolutely correct. And CNN is wrong in what they're doing. And I don't think that that should be covered under the First Amendment because we don't protect the ability for reporters to simply lie and make factually false statements. So that's a serious lawsuit that uh, Donald Trump is filing. Marjorie Taylor Greene is filing a lawsuit. And Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel said that the Republican Party is now going to sue Google because they're sending out emails to prospective contributors and it's going into the spam file. Isn't that horrible that 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 emails from the Republican National Committee are ending up in your spam file? All all the money that Rona McDaniel and the Republicans spent on buying other people's email lists to solicit you for donations. And those emails are ending up in your spam file, even though, you know, it's illegal to buy email lists and then spam people. Uh, nobody ever prosecutes the Democratic Party or the Republican Party for buying email lists to then solicit for donations. Uh, she's going to sue Google. Here she is on Mornings with Maria Bartiromo Wednesday. Here she's claiming uh, Google needs to take its thumb off the scale in our elections and our democracy. Also say that yeah. uh, Google is suppressing millions of election-related emails. Just in the last month, the committee is accusing the company of marking more than 22 million emails as spam, including get out the vote messages. You're exploring legal options. What are you uh, going to do? Yeah, so we spent the day on the phone with attorneys yesterday. We are very seriously looking at how we can sue Google. Google co controls 53% of the emails in the United States, and they are suppressing right now Republican get-out-the-vote emails ahead of this election. We know this. That would be the Republican Party, uh, the party of tort reform. Three lawsuits, right? That's your Republican Party for you. Well... Yes. We're going to be talking about Ukraine in about 10 minutes. What is going on in Ukraine? I don't know. Mary Cheney, not Mary Cheney, Liz Cheney, uh, gave a speech at the John McCain Institute in Arizona this 
week, and she says the Republican Party needs to be purged of politicians who are under the spell of Vladimir Putin. Now, I know a lot of my listeners don't think that's true. We we had a guest on Monday's show, Colonel Dick Black. He is a former Republican Virginia state senator. I asked him if he believed Vladimir Putin was financing parts of the Republican Party. He said no, but uh, Liz Cheney, who's on the January 6th committee, she says that there's a Putin wing of the Republican Party. Do you believe that? I believe that. Whether or not you believe in Russiagate, certainly you, you, you have to admit, I think, that there is a wing of the Republican Party that is in the thrall of Vladimir Putin. Take CPAC, right? They recently had one of Vladimir Putin's favorite leaders, Viktor Orban, speak at CPAC. Who is Viktor Orban? Well, he gets a lot of financing from Russia, as does Marine Le Pen in, in, in France. Vladimir Putin has been funneling money to right-wing authoritarians in the West. That's a fact. Whether or not you believe that Putin, through the election in favor of Trump, uh, the fact is that he's been meddling in Western democracies, propping up people like Orban, who, even though he's a member of NATO, is in the thrall of Putin, as is Tucker Carlson, as is Charlie Kirk, as are a lot of Republicans who just can't seem to get on board Ukraine and Zelensky. What is that about? I don't know. I don't know. I do know that Vladimir Putin appeals to a certain uh, white Christian nationalist in America because of his oppression of non-whites, his oppression of the LGBTQ community. He is seen by people like Charlie Kirk, Tucker Carlson, and Victor Orban and Marine Le Pen as the standard bearer of white nationalism. That's how many Republicans view Vladimir Putin. If Viktor Orban spoke at CPAC, an invitation to Vladimir Putin is not that far away. CPAC. CPAC. Well, this week, Vladimir Putin annexed four Ukrainian territories and called them part of the Russian Federation. CPAC tweeted that these territories were now officially part of Russia. They pretty much said it was a fait accompli. That's it. We have to accept it. The tweet went on to say, this is from CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee, right? The tweet went on to read, quote, Vladimir Putin announces the annexation of four Ukrainian-occupied territories, Biden and the Dems continue to spend Ukraine, continue to send Ukraine billions of taxpayer dollars. Meanwhile, we are under attack at our southern border. When will Democrats put America first and end the gift giving to Ukraine? And then CPAC panicked and deleted the tweet. 
Interesting, right? Now, whether or not you think we should be giving arms to Ukraine, uh, there's no question that the far right in this country is not supporting Ukraine. They are apologists for Vladimir Putin. And makes me wonder why. Makes me wonder why. Makes me wonder if they're getting money from Putin. As you know, two Nord Stream pipelines were sabotaged, leaking gas into the Baltic. Charlie Kirk from Turning Points, we played the clip, I think it was a week ago, said the CIA must prove they didn't do it. Uh, believe me, I, I think the CIA is capable of doing something like that. I just find it suspicious that people on the far right are accusing the CIA of sabotaging the pipelines. Colonel Dick Black, a Republican state senator from, from Virginia, he was on my show Monday, this week, he said that he suspects the CIA was behind the sabotage of those two pipelines. I mean, that's pretty incredible to say that our CIA would would do that. Uh, Tucker Carlson is constantly saying the CIA is behind it. Here is John Kirby from Joe Biden's National Security Council with Brett Baer yesterday on Fox News. We chopped it up a little, but this is the essence of the conversation. Did the U.S. or a proxy for the U.S. have anything to do with the explosion on the Nord Stream pipeline? The United States had nothing to do with it. That's just Russian propaganda and disinformation. You can officially say that the U.S. was not involved in any way in this attack. That's right, that's correct. Not to belabor this, but for the people who look at this and say, why would Russia attack its own pipeline that creates leverage over Europe and perhaps the West? What do you say to them? Uh, I can just assure you the United States had nothing to do with it. Of course, uh, that's just Russian propaganda. He's the one weaponizing energy. That's a that's part and parcel of his playbook. right? But John, wouldn't weaponizing energy mean controlling the pipeline? He, he does. He does control the pipeline. But not if he blew it up. Again, I, well, again, Brett, I'm not I'm not attributing this to any one actor right now. I'm saying we have we have every reason to believe that this was an act of sabotage, uh, but we haven't settled uh, on who's exactly responsible. Well, I don't think the CIA is that competent uh, <laughs> to do it, but the CIA is responsible for assassinations and coup d'etats all around the world since since its founding. So. Would they do this? I don't trust anybody. I don't trust John Kirby. I don't trust Joe Biden. I don't trust the CIA. But I really, really don't trust, really don't trust Fox News, Tucker Carlson, and uh, Charlie Kirk. And uh, I'm not sure I trust the guest who was on my show Monday, Dick Black, Colonel Dick Black. Uh, I don't know. And I'm glad they're asking these questions because I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough to to answer these questions. Should Brett Baer be asking if the CIA is behind the sabotage? Absolutely. All I can do is ask who's asking the questions.
What is their, what is their game? Why is Fox News? Why is Charlie Kirk? Why is a Republican state senator from Virginia? Why, why is, uh, why are they saying the CIA did this? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, you have to ask what else these people believe. They're asking these questions, but they do believe that the CIA is responsible. And that's fine. But what else do they believe? On uh, Monday, I asked Colonel Black, who this week said that he suspects, he said, quote, it's a pretty good guess that America's State Department and the CIA work together to blow up the Nord Stream pipeline. That's fine. You can say that. But what else do you believe? That's a reasonable request. What else do you believe? So I asked him on my show what else he believed. I asked him whether or not he believed that whether or not Putin has been tampering with American, French, Hungarian or British elections. He said no. He doesn't believe that Putin has tampered with our elections at all, right? Has not spread hundreds of million dollars throughout the West with troll farms. Okay. He also believes that the CIA blew up uh, the pipelines. That's fine. I asked him if the world would be better off without Vladimir Putin. He said he believes, uh, no, the world would be is better with Putin. He said on my show that Putin is a stabilizing influence in Russia. Okay, he can believe that. I, I accept that. And he also believes the CIA most probably blew up, sabotaged those pipelines. See, it's important to know what else somebody believes when they're speculating. I asked him about Putin's Wagner group. I asked him if it consisted of neo-Nazis. He said no. I said, really? Because it's named after Hitler's favorite composer, Wagner. And I've heard reports that the, the leader of the Wagner group is spreading neo-Nazi material at, at, uh, on, on the battlefield and has tattoos. He said no. Uh, and then I asked him if uh, Putin is right or wrong for saying that the Ukraine that Ukraine is in need of denazification. And he said, no, uh, Ukraine pretty much should be denazified. These are I don't know the answers to these questions. I just find it interesting that this is what the Republicans, the far right, believes. And they also believe that the CIA sabotaged those pipelines. I don't know who sabotaged the pipelines, but there are people who are blaming the CIA and a preponderance of them are on Fox News and they believe other things. And I think that kind of frames who they are. We're going to talk uh, about Ukraine and the war in Ukraine with Professor Ivan Kachinovsky. He's written extensively on Ukraine and Russia. He teaches at the School of Political Studies and Conflict Studies and Human Rights Program at the University of Ottawa. We will be back with this very important guest right after this. <laughs> 
Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. Fifteen bucks an hour, five days a week, fifty-two weeks a year, and thirty-two thousand years. I know it's a long time, honey, to thirty-four thousand and twenty. But when I get there, babe, I'm gonna be in the money. I'm on my way. Thank you so much, Professor Mike Steinel. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. Professor Ivan Kachinovsky has written extensively on Ukraine and Russia. He teaches at the School of Political Studies and Conflict Studies and Human Rights Program at the University of Ottawa. Thank you so much for joining us once again, Professor Kachinovsky. Thank you again for the invitation. It was a pleasure to be on your show before. Thank you. So... You've written extensively about Ukraine. You're, you're from Ukraine. You're now living in Canada. The last time you were on the show, there's a lot of misinformation coming out of the United States, out of Russia, out of Ukraine. You've been pretty vociferous about the false narratives coming out. Let, let's talk about uh, a report that in March of this year, Ukrainians and Russians negotiated in Istanbul. Now, this is what the Western press is reporting. And I think you've written about this. I, as I understand it, Ukraine agreed not to join NATO. This is negotiating with Russians in Turkey. They agreed they wouldn't join NATO. They would be allowed, I believe, to join the EU there would be a promise that Ukraine would remain neutral militarily. Russia and the West would guarantee its security. 
That was a deal that purportedly was struck at the end of March in Istanbul. How serious was this deal? Was Putin on board? And did Boris Johnson and the United States kill it? Uh, yes, this was a very serious uh, negotiations, which uh, I analyzed extensively at the time as they happened and afterwards. And I recently presented my paper or uh, my study of the Russia-Ukraine war at the annual meeting of American Political Science Association in Montreal, in which I also examined this issue in particular about negotiations and how they came to the end. And according to various sources, which I originally reported, in May, after the first publication in Ukraine's in Ukrainian media, in the Ukrainska Pravda newspaper, which is top newspaper in Ukraine, and which is also pro-Western and pro-Zelensky newspaper. And they have close connection to the Zelensky government. One of the journalists, former journalists, became uh, and now is advisor to uh, Zelensky. And they reported then in May that uh, negotiations between Russia and Ukraine were close to making a peace deal, and that this peace deal was ended after uh, the British Prime Minister visited uh, Kyiv in April and told Zelensky basically not to sign such a deal. And in particular, and he said also if Zelensky would sign such a deal, the Western countries would not provide guarantees, security guarantees to Ukraine. And this uh, information was supported later, in particular by publication in Foreign Affairs magazine in the United States, which is again one of the top journals. But this article was published by a former national security ad official, senior national security official in the United States, Fiona Hill, who was also a key witness Fiona in, Hill, yeah. in Trump impeachment. And she wrote in this article, which she wrote together with another former US government official, and she said that uh, many numerous um, West U.S. former senior officials confirmed to her that uh, there was a framework between agreed between Ukraine and Russia to uh, basically to reach such a deal in which Ukraine would become neutral country and uh, Russia would um, withdraw their forces um, from occupied areas. And the issue was, I think, the issue was only the issue was remaining about status of Donbass. And according to preliminary uh, discussions about this agreement. There was um, this issue was not yet resolved, and, uh, and according to article in Ukrainian Pravda, it was supposed to be resolved either during negotiations between Putin and Zelensky, or it would be left basically as status quo to be decided in the future. So there is confirmation from various sources, and just recently also Putin in his statement when he announced mobilization of Russian military forces and annexation of uh, regions which are occupied by Russia and separatist controlled Donbass. He also mentioned this deal, that this, this was a, basically a deal which was, uh, he said, broken by uh, the United States and the United Kingdom. So this various evidence which supports this. So uh, there was some kind of deal at the end of March where the Donbass region, uh, which just got uh, annexed into the Russian Federation, that was supposed to be negotiated at, at a future date, as well as Crimea? Would that also be on the table? This was uh, actually a written proposal by Ukrainian delegation at this peace talks. So the Ukraine... And yes, so this is what they propose 
to Russia. Basically, they, they propose that Ukraine would be neutral country, no NATO membership, and the uh, status of uh, Donbass will be decided later, maybe during negotiations with uh, Putin, or maybe would be left as status quo, kind of uh, during the, what, what happened at the borders which were uh, de facto, um, including the ones which were occupied by Russia, but uh, they also mentioned the status of Crimea would be basically left for 15 years to be decided later. Okay. So it would be put after, out of agreement, and this was proposed by Ukrainian delegation. And according to various sources, Russia basically uh, not accepted this immediately, but they said that this was kind of uh, basically point to discuss, and they were re they were ready to to discuss this, and there was possibility of even of meeting between Putin and Zelensky, according to Ukrainian Kapavda sources. One of the things we've been talking about on this show is, in the end, this is how the war will end, with uh, Eastern Ukraine somehow being negotiated, uh, the fighting stops, and uh, Ukraine doesn't join NATO. I didn't think it would ever be allowed by Russia to join the EU, but apparently that was okay with Russia, right? Yes, it was also in the agreement uh, mentioned specifically that all countries, uh, in Ukrainian proposal, that all countries which provide security guarantees to Ukraine would also provide um, provide uh, support for Ukraine joining the European Union. And uh, at the time, uh, Putin said that he did not object to European Union membership of Ukraine. And before this war, also I mentioned in my interviews and publications that one way to resolve this conflict is basically to, uh, to for Ukraine to become a neutral country, to accept uh, some kind of autonomy for Donbass, according to Minsk agreements, and to offer Ukraine real prospect of becoming a European Union uh, member. And this was basically what was uh, similar. The proposal was submitted by Ukrainian delegation during this peace talks, and there was real possibility that deal would be reached. But uh, now, I think this is after British Prime Minister basically said that there is no way for Ukraine to uh, kind of check. What, what is, so what is the incentive of Boris Johnson to kill this deal? I think uh, he, this was, uh, he was speaking not uh, from himself, uh, even so he opposed such a deal because this would mean that Putin would uh, would uh, uh, would be considered to be achieved some of his uh, goals because uh, Putin justified this illegal invasion of Ukraine by uh, saying that uh, NATO membership of Ukraine is uh, not acceptable to Russia. So if Ukraine agreed to such um, agreement, there's no NATO membership. So this would support kind of justification for uh, Putin's invasion. Even so, there was no possibility of Ukraine becoming a member of NATO. In, uh, in the near future, but still, uh, this would mean that the West would uh, would basically would consider that uh, Russia achieved by force, by military force, the political goal. In addition to this, I think uh, uh, Johnson was not speaking just on behalf of himself. He was speaking on behalf of the collective West, which he mentioned, which means, I think, uh, United States in particular, and, uh, and Zelensky uh, just... Uh, did not say no because he is very dependent militarily on the West, economically on the West, because the Western countries provided all the military basically support for Ukraine funding, even for the government, uh, just okay. paying salaries to the government. And so 
So basically, this is a very large amount of money, and uh, and also kind of uh, Ukraine is uh, since Maidan is uh, also uh, is very dependent on the United States because U.S. government has very strong influence in Ukrainian politics in nomination of, for instance, prime ministers of, of Ukraine in uh, selection of um, of uh, even head of security service or the security general office according to various Ukrainian media reports and tapes which were published. So this kind of dependence of Ukraine, and Ukraine is not an equal ally, uh, as often media try to present of the United States, is actually, Ukraine is more like a client state of the United States, and this is real politics, uh, right. or geopolitics. I want to read something you wrote uh, eight years ago, right around the time after Crimea was taken by Putin. You wrote this in the Washington Post. You had a piece eight years ago uh, entitled, What Do Citizens of Ukraine Actually Think About Secession? Because at the time, there was this report of separatists in the Donbass region, which is now, according to Putin, part of the Russian Federation. This is what you wrote in 2014. The representation of separatism in Donbass by the Ukrainian and the Western governments and the media as small groups of Russian military intelligence agents and local terrorists or rebels who lack popular backing in this region and therefore can be easily defeated by force is unfounded. You're saying, this is what you wrote, I believe, eight years ago, you were saying that there, there was a movement, a legitimate separatist movement in the Donbass region of Russian-speaking Ukrainians who wanted to be part of a Russian federation, and they weren't, this wasn't being ginned up by Russian military intelligence agents. It was a genuine, it is a genuine urge to go back to Russia. Do you still believe that? Uh, yes, and uh, there's uh, a lot of evidence supporting this, and I, I, I wrote my article based on survey research, which I commissioned a public opinion poll, which I commissioned from Kiev International Institute of Sociology, which is leading uh, Ukrainian public opinion uh, company, research company, and they conducted public opinion poll, which showed that there was uh, majority support for various types of separatism and a significant support for joining Russia in Donbass. And I also published my book based on my doctoral dissertation, which I defended in the United States in 2001, in which I analyzed all the election results, all public opinion polls. And in, in my book and in my dissertation, PhD dissertation, I noticed, uh, I compared Ukraine to Moldova, neighboring Moldova, which had similar separatist problem and de facto secession of one of the region. And I predicted that Ukraine can have similar outcome to what happened in Moldova. Because, and I mentioned specifically uh, Crimea and Donbass as two regions in which there was a very significant support for separatism if a political situation would change. And this is what happened. Crimea uh, was annexed by Russia, but there was a very strong support for joining Russia, according to public opinion polls. In your piece, you said it was at about 52%, as I remember. Yeah, I think 56 or total. Of so it's not, I mean, so what does that mean? It means that half of the Donbass region wanted to be absorbed into Russia and the other half didn't? 
no, it was it meant the population about a slight majority of population wanted to support at the time various kind of separatism from a region from autonomy within Ukraine, which was still official uh, goal of separatist government at the time in Donbass or to join in Russia or to become an independent state. So a so a if I'm hearing you properly, a little more than half, not a big majority of people living in the Donbass wanted to secede from Ukraine and either become an independent nation or be absorbed into Russia. Is that? This is also important to say, or to to remain autonomous region, to become an autonomous region within Ukraine. Like a part of a federation. Yes, basically as part of federal Ukraine. As part of Ukraine. So you know more than I do, but it doesn't sound like it's an overwhelming desire to be absorbed by Putin. Uh, yes, this is the case. And, uh, and uh, am I right in saying? Right? Am, I, am I right? Am I right in saying that your polling back in 2014 didn't indicate that there was an overwhelming yearning to be brought back into Mother Russia? Um, yes, at the time there was there was a real possibility of resolving this conflict by giving UK, uh, Donbass autonomy, and this is what I also advocated at the time. But uh, if the choice is between yes or no, basically if uh, becoming independent or not independent, then this would mean that a lot of people who supported autonomy of Ukraine, which was the official goal of, of Donbass separatists at the time, would they switch and start joining and start supporting Russia? And there were some public opinion polls conducted by German sociological company for German Research Institute, and they found that in the recent years there was majority support for joining Russia in a separatist-controlled part of Donbass. What percentage of the Donbass is Russian-speaking? And what uh, I think this is like overwhelmingly they speak uh, they speak Russian, so maybe like 95 percent uh, or some or more than 90 percent they are uh, Russian-speaking. Even mm-hmm. so, ethnic Russian population is only about close to 50 percent in Donbass. I see. So that's why uh, this two regions, Crimea, there was majority ethnically Russian population. And in Donbass, it was close to half. But in other regions, which I examined, like Kherson or Zaporizhia, which are now occupied by Russia and annexed by Russia, there was very small support for joining Russia at the time. And this is the case still. So just few percent wanted to join Russia. And, and they are, they are Russian-speaking population, but they are Ukrainians. Right. You That's could... why they do not want to join Russia, because they are still Ukrainians, even though they speak Russian. You... Russian. Ukraine is the second largest country in Europe. America has been eyeing it for its natural resources. It's a a market that this country has wanted to tap. No question. The Maidan, the the Yanukovych, uh, was he violently overthrown by America? I think uh, it's much to say. Uh, it's based on my research. He was violently overthrown by elements of the Maidan opposition, including oligarchic elements of mainstream political parties, and also elements of far right opposition, which uh, organized a Maidan massacre of police and protesters, and basically overthrew. Was uh, this something that Hillary? Was this something Hillary and the Biden, uh, the Obama administration? helped orchestrate, do you think? Something we wanted? Uh, 
there is no evidence of direct U.S. involvement in this in Maidan massacre. But there was a testimony or interviews with two former, uh, actually two, uh, two leaders of the Maidan at the time from the far right party, which was called Svoboda. And they uh, wrote in a book, they, uh, they interviews were published in a book, which was published by Ukrainian journalists and, um, per Maidan. Uh, and they said that before Maidan massacre, a few weeks before the Maidan massacre, they, they and other Maidan leaders met with a representative from the West and the representative from the West told them that um, it's not sufficient that a few people are killed during, um, during Maidan protests at the time, um, but it, uh, that Western uh, support for Yanukovych government would change, and the recognition of Yanukovych government would change only if the number of killed uh, protesters would be 100. So they, they basically kind of uh, talk about number, which would be sufficient for uh, for number of to, to end recognition by of the Polish government by uh, by the West, and this is what happened uh, after the Maidan massacre. Right after the Maidan massacre, there was a declaration by the Maidan leadership that uh, there was uh, kind of 100 protesters killed, and they call this heavenly hundred. Even so, this was not yet 100 protesters, so they included some some um, some people who were not even on Maidan specifically to to publicize this 100. And there was uh, admission by Obama in CNN interview in, in which he said that um, uh, he helped to organize a transition of power in Ukraine during the Maidan before Yanukovych uh, fled from Kyiv and from Ukraine. And also in his memoirs, uh, Biden uh, said that uh, he called Yanukovych right after the Maidan massacre and told him to leave basically uh, not only from presidency of Ukraine, but also from, uh, from Ukraine. And this was Kind of uh, what was basically what happened, and uh, this led to a change of the government. And this is, uh, I think, uh, what kind of uh, U.S. involvement is uh, information is available right now. You're, you were you're from Ukraine. From what I've read, there are 15 million people who've been forced to leave their homes. The UN used to say there were six million refugees forced to leave Ukraine. We were looking at a map. It's way more than 6 million Ukrainians who've left Ukraine, been forced to leave Ukraine. If America stayed out of this, if America just let Ukraine alone, what would Russia's relationship be with Ukraine right now? Uh, I think it's it's very difficult to say because this is like real world and I deal with real world and politics. So I think if uh, if uh, if uh, US would not be involved, so basically Ukraine would be more likely a client state of Russia, similar to what is currently with Belarus, basically, and uh, Russia would would be an influential in Ukrainian politics, similar to what is currently uh, the role of the United States, and according to. I think data from uh, UK, uh, Ukrainian statistics, there, there are a lot of people who left Ukraine, but many of them also returned back from European Union countries um, because the war uh, is no longer taking place in their uh, kind of, uh, regions of Ukraine, in particular in Kyiv region or Kharkiv region. So a lot of people returned to Ukraine. But uh, I think uh, because uh, Ukraine is, I think, in a very tragic situation because it's uh, now became a center of uh, fight basically or struggle between two uh, nuclear powers. Right. 
Russia, which invaded Ukraine, and the United States, which wanted to use Ukraine against Chilvik and Russia. And, and basically, this is now not only war between uh, Russia and Ukraine, which is, um, again, very damaging to Ukraine, and I think would like it to continue without any prospect of, of real peace because of uh, Russian annexation of, um, of, of this region. But also, this is also because uh, um, of a proxy war between the West and, uh, and Russia in Ukraine. And this is another dimension which is also very important. Before you go, what is in the Donbass that Putin wants other than people who identify with Mother Russia? What are the minerals? What, what, is it coal? Is it energy? Is it rare earth? What, what, rare minerals? What, what does Putin want in, from the Donbass? Uh, Donbass is basically an industrial heartland of Ukraine. It is a very industrial region built at the time of the Soviet Union, including in particular kind of, uh, heavy steel uh, kind of production and uh, metal production, like industry steel mills and so on, and coal. So this, this is, again, a very important industrial uh, center of Ukraine. In addition to this, uh, Donbass, in particular southern Donbass, along with the Parisia region and Hesod region, would provide uh, Russia a direct connection to Crimea, which was annexed by Russia, over land. Mm -hmm. And this is another reason why Russia basically annexed uh, Donbass, along with uh, Kherson and the Parisia regions. Of Ukraine. Fantastic. Professor Ivan Kachanovsky has written extensively on Ukraine and Russia. He teaches at the School of Political Studies and Conflict Studies and Human Rights Program at the University of Ottawa in Canada, where he joined us today. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule. How do people follow you on Twitter? Yes, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. How do people follow you on Twitter, Professor? Uh, yes, they they can follow on Twitter. This is my uh, last name, uh, first name I and uh, uh, last name Kachanovsky, which may be difficult to spell, but uh, they can use my name or just uh, search for. Yes, for we'll, we'll put. I'll put a link to your Twitter account in the description of the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Please come back. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the David Feldman Show. Office hours Friday night at 8 p.m. We'll continue discussing this. We'll be back with Royal Watcher Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling. But first. <laughs> Welcome back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Sign up for my newsletter. This is always a special time of the show where we get to talk to royal watcher Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling. He's coming to us from Renning Rimmington, Rimmington Hall in East Anglia. That would be in Great Britain. Welcome, Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling. Well, hello, David, once again. How are we today? We're very good. Thank you for, for joining us. Thank you. I must say the previous conversation about the Ukraine was very interesting. Really. 
Yeah. Now, have you ever been to the Ukraine? We should mention that you grew up with Madge. You call him Madge. We call him. Well, he's Madge. His mother was her Madge. And it was also her mother was his Madge as well. Because, well, you know how it works. It's short for Majesty. It's uh, uh, yes, yeah. I did spend a summer in Ukraine uh, around about 1968, as it happens. Ah, what were you doing there? I had a dalliance with a, let's say, hedonistic uh, activist who was trying to legalize marijuana in that fair country. Mm-hmm. Uh, her name is Frida Weed. Frida Weed. Frida yes. Weed. Frida Weed. Frida Weed. Yeah. Frida Weed. Lovely yeah. lady. Lovely lady. Rather forgetful. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very opportunistic uh, in that way, yes. Yes. And it was a romantic, anyway, it was yes. a romantic dalliance that you had in... Ukraine, which back then was part of the Soviet Union, and your mm -hmm. father, Sir Arthur Grieb Striebling Sr., yes. ended up moving. I believe he went to Cambridge. He was yeah. a, a spy during World War II, but ended up... Well, I think spy is a strong word, David. I was merely a businessman, uh, had business in Moscow, and... You know, uh, so working for MI6. Well, in a roundabout way, yes. He did spend rather a long time uh, uh, being uh, questioned by the Moscow State Police. Seems to uh, me, seems to me, when I, sir, I've read that Sir Arthur Greeb Striebling eventually moved to M Moscow. And was, I think, if he returned to Remington Hall in East Anglia, he'd be arrested and shot for treason. That was the, the story that we, who knows if that's true. No, 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 that's uh, au contraire, au contraire. Uh, no, and in fact, uh, he had moved to Moscow, but it was completely uh, not his will. Uh, oh, he was kidnapped. He was arrested trying to leave. Moscow, yes. Okay. The well, the story is that, I don't know how to put this, he worked for MI6, but not, not really. Well, who does actually work <laughs> for MI6? Well, people who, mean, are, people who are loyal to their country. Yeah. People, yes. People who are not supposed to be spying on their country. I believe your father was a, a, a code breaker during World War II, right? Uh, more of a nose breaker, really. In fact, why I was arrested. Uh, didn't, didn't have a, uh, didn't have a, 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 a long temperament. He had a short fuse somewhat, I, which gave, I, gave him away. He's a, Quite a violent man, in fact, yes. It is my understanding that during World War II, your home, Remington, yes. Remington Hall, was a, a place where mathematicians gathered to mm -hmm. to crack the code, Hitler's code. And that you're well, there you see again, it's just, uh, 
the matter of conjecture, uh, they wound down in, in, in our house uh, by um, well, taking crack. And I guess it seems to be a thing with uh, around these parts. They were uh, working on the old Enigma code, and I think without the use of extremely strong drugs, that code wouldn't have been cracked. And Father, in his capacity as a, um, let's say, businessman, was, uh, uh, could easily access such um, illicit substances, yes. Mm-hmm. Exotic now, substances, I'd put it, yes. Hitler had the Enigma code. Yes. But there was a, a, a code that was not... Can you say can you say enigma these days? I I think so. I, right, okay, thank you. Yes, yes. I thought it was I thought it was racist in PC not to say that. Well, anymore. when your when your father disappeared to Moscow, did you feel abandoned? Did you go visit him in Russia when when you were dating that woman in Ukraine? You were in the Soviet Union at the time. Did you visit your father? It, it's hard to feel abandoned by parents who send you to school at the age of seven, and uh, you see them once in a blue moon. So abandonment, uh, I wouldn't go that far. Disappointment, mm-hmm. more, more of a disappointment, I'd say, yes. And, uh, yes. and your children? You, you have children? I have several children. Um, officially, none. <laughs> <laughs> so... You 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 don't see them. Oh, I see them. They don't know I'm looking. Uh, but uh, yes, less said about that the better for a number of reasons: uh, child maintenance and tax. Yes. Um, but yes, and yeah, yeah, yes. One had a reputation uh, in in my youth as being a bit of a, I think, what would be called a player. A player, yes, with the ladies. Yes, I had a a wandering eye, as it were, so to speak, to kind of phrase a overactive trouser wand. A wandering yes. eye. So, yes. you you've been married before. Yes, yes, but, yes. But you and she had to go. She had to go. Yes, she had to go. Why, mummy? Or your mother did. Mummy didn't. Mummy did not approve, and she did not approve of mummy. So uh, I you, wouldn't. I wouldn't say I have mummy issues, but and push comes to shove, uh, uh, was not mummy who was shoved. And mu- and mummy is still with you. She's still in the chair. Yes, looking at me with that pained expression. Uh, because, as you are aware, she died a long time ago and was stuffed. But the reason she has that expression is because uh, I stuffed her while she was still alive. Uh-huh. So, uh, I, I'd say startled. Right. Quite startled, yes. So Mummy has been mummified, and she sits in a rocking chair in the master bedroom. Yes. And next, to, next to the badgers. Next to the badgers? Yes, well, I've, I have 12 stuffed badgers. <laughs> She was, she was famed. She was famed for loving badgers. <laughs> so when she died in her honor, I had a number of them killed and stuffed and stood next to her. 
Yes, it was very much pro-Badger. How many dressers, how many people are under your employ to dresser each morning? Oh, I, uh, that pleasure is indeed all mine. <laughs> you, you, now, is that uh, truly because you enjoy dressing mummy or because you are destitute now? Bit of both. And I once fancied myself as a sort of set designer and costume designer for movies. It never came about. Mm-hmm. Not what one would call a masculine job in, back in the day. Right. But I, I fancied myself. Uh, currently, uh, she resembles a clown. She's dressed as a clown today. Yes, yes. Now, is she an autumn, a winter? What kind of colors do you use with her? Well, I've gone for red and white mainly, uh, with the black liners around the eyes. As a and today, she'll be a clown. Tomorrow, well, maybe for another couple of days, she'll be a clown. But I think maybe next week, possibly yeah, an astronaut mm-hmm. with a lovely astronaut suit upstairs. I'm gonna plonk her in that and uh, sit and pretend that I am friends with an astronaut, a man who's seen things I am yet to see. So you talk about. Today, what did you talk about with Mummy? Does she approve of King well, Charles? Actually, actually, speaking of astronauts, uh, the neighbors, uh, the famous neighbors, had the mother of all visits today. Uh, the mother, the mother ship of all visits. The queen visits. Sorry, I nearly, I nearly let out the cat from the bag there. The queen visits. Vi- the queen visited. And the queen was taken up. Uh, She has been uh, in pupa form in her coffin for a good few weeks now, and she's came out of that chrysalis, and the machine came from the skies and took her away. Hmm. Um, As we all know, she's most definitely an alien, and not from this world. And, uh, yeah, so there was a loud cracking noise, like thunder. And this machine arrived and uh, screamed, Ooh, <laughs> and uh, locked her away and took her beyond, yes. Well, they still haven't come for your mummy, though. Well, no, and actually it's quite concerning. Uh, the aliens said, uh, we'll be back next year for Chuck. So who knows? Oh, who knows? It's an interesting coronation. Interesting. We have been talking with Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling from Remington Hall in East Anglia. And would would, would you like a cup of coffee, David? I, yes, sir. Uh, Thank you. you. Oh, no, it's a phone, isn't it? I can't give you a cup of coffee. I do apologize. Give me, give my best to your mummified mother. And maybe we can. David says hello. Yes, mommy. Yes. Uh, she didn't respond, obviously. She didn't respond, but in my heart she responded. Ah, uh, good. Thank yes. thank you, Sir Arthur Grebe Streebling. Goodbye, David. Goodbye. Great job. Thank Goodbye. you. Let us now go down to Georgia, where Sir Professor Ben Burgess is standing by. He is the author of where's the book here it is it has the feldman guarantee 
Here it is. Christopher Hitchens, what he got right, how he went wrong, and why he still matters. And if you buy the book and you don't love it, let me know, and I will reimburse you. It has the Feldman guarantee. Hello, Professor Burgess. I have to ask you, were you hit by Ian? Was I hit by Ian? Oh, uh, the no, no, it passed us by. Nothing. Yeah, basically nothing. I see. Okay. The elections in uh, Brazil on Sunday. It was a landslide, wasn't it? Bolsonaro lost big. It's just that Lula didn't get 50%. Yeah, Lula didn't get to fit. I mean, I can't speak to this too deeply, but from what I've seen, um, I think that there's this attempt to spin that as as a sort of loss uh, because there were some, you know, polls that, you know, that showed he was going to win by even more than he did, or maybe even win the, you know, win outright in the first round. But I also think like basic reality check, uh, he did beat Bolsonaro by several million votes. And, um, and it's actually, I believe it's the first time since, you know, they started having democratic elections again in Brazil, you know, in the mid 1980s that, uh, that anybody's, um, Anybody has beaten the uh, the incumbent in the uh, the first round of a presidential election, and again he beat him by quite a bit. So, um, so I mean, I, I think that like tried to say, well, it could have been an even bigger win. So it's like a strange sort of loss is a little much. We were just talking about Ukraine. You have a yeah. piece over at the the Daily Beast came yep. out, I think, yesterday. It's entitled, mm -hmm. What the Cuban Missile Crisis Can Teach the U.S. About How to Deal with Russia and Ukraine. What did Bobby Kennedy, what did Jack Kennedy teach us? Yeah, I mean, I think that if you look back at what happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, plenty of people thought that... Um, you know, thought that making any sort of compromise with with the Russians was um, was appeasement that uh, that uh, that it was it was a surrender. That um, I mean, he had. I think if if LBJ had even become president a few years earlier, it's it's possible that we wouldn't be having this conversation. Because if you if you read um, the uh, Robert Carroll books about about uh, President Johnson. Um, he has, uh, you know, I mean, he was, uh, you know, he was pushing very hard in some of those meetings. This makes us look weak. You know, we uh, we can't uh, we can't do that. Uh, and similarly, on he was the siding Soviets, with Kurt. He was siding with Curtis LeMay. Yeah, basically. Yeah, exactly. Saying, let's go. Who, uh, let's go in there and finish the Russians. Let's do it now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That we should be we should be hitting the missile sites in Cuba. Um, and similarly, on the Soviet side, uh, that there, you know, Khrushchev talks about it. I have a long quote from him at the end of the article about uh, all the people who thought that he was surrendering to Western imperialism by by making the uh, the deal that he did. And and I think that actually there's a strange way in which what's happening now is kind of a, a role reversed version of the the Cuban Missile Crisis because in both cases you have a um, you have a less powerful, more vulnerable country, Cuba or Ukraine, 
that has an entirely legitimate fear of its great power neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, in in the Cuban case, the U.S. had uh, the year before had sponsored an unsuccessful invasion at the Bay of Pigs. There have been numerous attempts to do things like assassinate Fidel Castro. Uh, and Operation Mongoose. Yeah, exactly. And then in the Ukrainian case, um, you know, there was there was Russia, you know, seizing back Crimea. There was uh, there was there had been a civil war since uh, 2014 with Russian-backed separatists who were basically acting as as Russian agents, um, you know, controlling you know controlling some you know relatively small but still controlling parts of the country uh, that you know that could you know couldn't be dislodged. So. In both cases, fearing you know future aggression from a great power neighbor was rational, and in both cases, uh, the uh, the less powerful country turned to the great power rival for some kind of military alliance, you know, to try to give them some protection. But in the um, in the Cuban case, the attempt is to you know well you know what they did was invite the Soviet Union to put nuclear missiles on their their territory, which would. Uh, which would be, you know, to actually have a nuclear deterrent against, you know, future U.S. invasion. And in uh, the Ukrainian case, there's an attempt to, you know, to do uh, the equivalent that, uh, that you know, if, you know, Ukraine, you know, not that it was going to be approved anytime soon in any case, you know, but, uh, but, they, you know, but one of the issues was Ukraine pursuing NATO membership, which if that was ever successful, uh, that would... Um, you know, that would have a very similar effect because it would mean that any aggression against Ukraine would trigger a direct conflict between nuclear powers. They, you know, trigger Article 5 of uh, the NATO Charter, saying that every member state has to treat an attack and every other member state is an attack on them. Uh, so, in and, you know, and, and in both cases, it's not that, you know, it's not that this is the only issue by a long shot. I mean, again, in both cases, the aggression by the regional power happened before. They turn to they turn to this, but uh, but in both cases, this was you know this is part of a series of events that led to uh, that led to really dangerous escalation between uh, between the you know the major powers. Which I think, in some ways, it's actually bizarre to me that um, like if you go and like scroll down the New York Times website right now, you'll see so little about this mm-hmm. since. Uh, th- this is, um, you know, I think this is by far, I mean, conservatively at the very least, the most danger that we've been in with direct wars with Russia since the Cuban Missile Crisis. In some ways, actually worse. I mean, if you think about yeah, stuff and, like... And, for, and with leaders here who have not been tempered by war the same way Khrushchev and... And Kennedy were, yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, that's right. That both of them, that both of them uh, were involved in different ways in their, their country's military during, during World War II. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. And I think that, um, and, uh, and you know, even back like months ago, there were some things that had happened that were, you know, like extreme forms of escalation that, um, that there were, uh, you know, there were, there were New York Times stories uh, at that time about uh, U.S. intelligence providing you know, direct logistical support, intelligence support to Ukrainian operations to sink Russian ships, assassinate Russian generals. So, the you know, if you think about the comparison with the Cuban Missile Crisis, in some ways, that's even more worried. I mean, the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, the KGB wasn't 
provided direct intelligence to Cuba to help them to, you know, to, to sink, uh, one of the American ships embargo in Cuba or, or, right. or assassinated an American general that openly bragging about it to Pravda. Um, and then re- more, much more recently, I mean, just now the, uh, you know, the Russians, you know, I mean, Putin has, has engaged in a, in a fairly, you know, has engaged in a really extreme new escalation, you know, by, by formally annexing, uh, bits and pieces of, uh, of Ukraine that are, that are held by the United States, which makes it like really hard to, to see, you know, what right. like a, a permanent, uh, a permanent peace deal could look like. Cause I mean, the Ukrainians, you know, can't and won't, me, you know, me, accept, yeah. ex- ex- accept that. But I was just going to say, I mean, I think that the, the big takeaway for me here is just, I don't know, and neither does anybody else, like what could actually emerge if everybody sat down to talk. It's possible that like just nothing could, you know, that like it's, it's possible that the worst case scenario, all the most cynical things people say about this are true. But I think given how dangerous the situation has become, I think we should, we should all be fairly outraged that uh, everybody you know, at least as far as we know publicly, has has not done that. That they uh, right. that like because because nobody around the world who would be uh, who would be killed in the event that this escalated to the point of all out war between the major powers. I mean, nobody's been consulted about this. We didn't take a vote about whether we were you know we were willing to to take that risk. The worst case scenario has already happened. Sixteen million Ukrainians have lost their homes. Far yeah. more than six million refugees have left Ukraine. Blackstone is already meeting with Zelensky to rebuild Ukraine. The the worst has already happened. Uh, Kennedy did not want war, mm-hmm. and he arranged for face saving for Russia. They made a secret deal. That, you know, you pull, you give us a public win today, you pull the Mm -hmm. missiles out, we'll remove the missiles. I think in Turkey, we had some missiles in Turkey, is that? Mm -hmm. But that was done sub rosa. It was all about face saving and they didn't want war. Khrushchev didn't want war. There was a mini coup we think during the Cuban Missile Crisis in Russia, where he temporarily lost power because the hardliners did want a war. But Khrushchev and Kennedy did not want a war. Did Biden and Blinken want a war? I'm sure they don't, but at the same really, time... Really, you don't think... Let me, let me run a couple of questions past sure, you. Sure, And Go stay off the chat. Stay away from the chat room. Please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, now I want to see what's going on there. But okay. No, please. Uh, it, uh, so, get, let me ask you some short questions because sure. we had sure. we had Colonel Dick Black on the show. Uh, yeah. And he's now a lot of people love him. A lot of my listeners love him. A lot of them thought I was rude to him. Okay. But I want to ask you a couple of questions. Sure. That I asked him, and I want to find out. What you think you know. Sure. Okay. Do you think, given what you now know, Mm -hmm. do you think Biden could have stopped Putin from invading Ukraine by promising no NATO for Ukraine? 
and we'll negotiate the Donbass. Do you think that would have stopped the invasion? I think there's a very good chance it would have. I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. Well, you, this, this is what I was going to say earlier. But, but let, me ask you a couple of, let me ask you a couple okay, of questions. Okay, sure. Because sure. Uh, I was told that these were rude gotcha questions. Okay. So, uh, and stay off the chat, please. Forget Russiagate. I would assume yeah. you don't believe. We both believe that Hillary lost the election by herself. Yeah. She didn't need Putin. Do you right. believe that Vladimir Putin has spent close to half a trillion dollars in the past couple of years disrupting Western democracy in order to uh, prop up authoritarian regimes like in Hungary, France? Mm -hmm. Was he behind Brexit? Has he been mm -hmm. propping up the Republican Party and the NRA? I'm not talking about throwing elections, but has sure. he been doing what we do? Sure. Uh, so I don't I can't speak to that specific. Like, what do you suspect? What do you suspect? Well, what's, sure. Well, I was going to say, I, you know, that's the first time I've heard that specific dollar estimate. So I can't tell you about that. Uh, I do think, uh, look, sure. Does, does the Russian government uh, spend, uh, spend money on trying to influence other people's elections? Of course they do. They have, uh, that they are, um, are they willing to, um, you know, are they willing to make all sorts of, um, you know, all sorts of alliances with both, you know, that might in some cases actually work out to be, you know, to be good, you know, if, if there's some like Latin American, you know, government that might be menaced by the United States, you know, that Russia might make an enemy of an enemy agreement with them, and that wouldn't be a bad thing. But could they also, do they also support plenty of, of right wing and even, you know, and, and authoritarian? Let, let me yeah, ask sure. you, let, yes. let's, did the Marine answers, yes. Le Pen visit? How, how much? How much difference it makes to the outcome of those elections? I think is a separate question. But sure, I mean, is there an attempt to? Is there an attempt to exert influence on whoever they think would, um, you know, whoever they think would be uh, would be an enemy of their primary enemies? Of course they do. Okay, so in America, do you think the Republican Party is in the thrall of uh -huh. Putin? No, I don't. I think that the uh, you don't I think, think he's you, bankrolling a lot of these. I think. I think. Think, I think Well, well let's, let's let's be really specific about this because I think that if you if you look, for example, at the um, at the vote on uh, on the forty billion dollars in uh, in new aid to uh, to Ukraine that happened a little while ago, uh, there were Republicans who voted against that, but also most of them, the leadership. It's hard. To, it's it. hard. But okay. And, and, and by but it's the way, hard to vote by, against that. Okay, I guess, but I mean, I'm just saying that the uh, that uh, that that doesn't sound very in the thrall to me. I mean, if somebody was, uh, if somebody's in your thrall and they're voting to uh, to spend uh, to spend tens of billions of dollars to kill your soldiers, I don't think it's a very effective thrall. Also, one by the way, one thing I would say about that vote that's significant is that I don't. I, I think the ones who did vote against it, I don't think really get any points for being big peaceniks because if you look at their statements about it, with one weird exception, um, the craziest one of all is the is the exception to this. But with one exception, uh, they they didn't like nobody used the word like de-escalation and negotiation when they were explaining their no votes. Mostly, they said that like that going after Russia was a distraction from going after China. Okay. So do you think 
Putin's money, do you think the mm -hmm. oligarchs in Russia have, I've read that 80% of Russia's assets have been offshored mm -hmm. and that it's wreaking havoc in our financial markets and our policy, that they are buying up think tanks along with Russian real estate, uh, along with American real estate, and that people like Trump and other Republican businessmen and Democratic businessmen are salivating over that money and will do sure. anything for it. Do you, do you believe that? Do I believe which part exactly? That do you they, believe that, that Trump was salivating over dirty oligarch money from Russia? Look, I'm sure Trump would not uh, would not be above, uh, you know, making deals with all of those people and like try to make money off of it. I will say, though, that I think that one thing that is is a little bit strange about the record here is that as hard as this is to remember, um, like Trump was actually significantly more aggressive towards Russia and his foreign policy that Obama wasn't his. In fact, he wanted to dissolve the, NATO. Professor. The, uh, he wanted to dissolve NATO. Well, I don't think he did, but also he, he did. He a, said uh, he wanted to get rid of NATO. What could be more uh, of a kiss well, up well, to well, Putin? Well, well, Obama wasn't willing to sell heavy, you know, have said heavy weaponry to Ukraine. Trump was. Uh, Obama was a lot more hands off in Syria than Trump was. Trump held uh, up. Tr Trump, Trump held Trump, up. Trump, Trump held Trump, up. Trump was Trump, Trump was uh, Trump was also a lot more aggressive in opposing the Nord Stream uh, pipeline to uh, to Germany. Trump you know, held Obama up money to he wouldn't give money to Zelensky. That's why he was impeached. He yeah, held but up why not? Because he wanted dirt on uh, yeah. Hunter. I mean, I mean, I mean, it's it's a negotiate. Like, yes, there is a uh, there is a negotiated thing where he had a. Uh, Let's debate. Let's do a uh, shot. I want to debate he was, you. He was, he was willing to, uh, you know, he was willing to do that as a pressure tactic. But overall, in terms of U.S. involvement in Ukraine, Trump was way more of a hawk than Obama was. As hard as it is to remember, the whole time Obama was president, one of the big you know, Republican talking points on foreign policy is that he was too soft on Putin. Remember the 2012 uh, general election debate where they had the question about uh, the uh, – the greatest geopolitical threat to the U.S. Obama said global warming, which was you know which is good, uh, and uh, and uh, Romney said Russia. There was like a week when all of liberal America made fun of him for saying Russia. I remember because because uh, Mitt Romney Mitt Romney is still stuck in the Cold War. I remember Obama said the 1960s called. They want your foreign policy back. I remember that. we have to we have to wrap it up. I, I'm ready to debate you now after a couple of years. Okay. I, I'm like, I, I was into, I, I want to, uh, we should debate. I, I think I'm ready to lose to you. Uh, no, that's not how that goes. Okay. And the last question. Sure. The CIA blowing up the pipelines in the Baltic. Here's, yeah. here's, here's what I've noticed. Sure. I, I, when I hear your friend, Charlie Kirk. Yes. Good friend. Yep say he thinks the CIA did it. When I hear Tar Tucker Carlson say he thinks the CIA did it, when mm -hmm. I hear right-wing, uh, right-wingers on Fox News say mm -hmm. the CIA was behind this, mm -hmm. am I wrong to consider the source and then think otherwise? 
I don't think the fact that they think the CIA did it is a reason to um, uh, is a reason to think that the CIA did it. I don't take anything those people you just listed to say seriously in any subject that has no evidential value at all. But I also don't think it's a good idea to just uh, to just hear uh, your political enemies say something and conclude that the opposite might, might be uh, must be true. I think that's a I think that's a a methodology that leads you into some pretty goofy places. Uh, do, you I think think, they, do, you, do you think? Do you think? I think. I, I, I think. Look, I mean, the it just. I mean, it's recently come out. It's been widely reported in the mainstream press that the uh, that um, that the culprit seems to have been, you know, involved at least in elements of the Ukrainian government. Uh, not necessarily Zelensky, because like part of the uh, part of the uh, part of the deal there is that uh, is that there there are different elements of you know that's much less of a unified that, government. That would make think. sense to me. That would make the people the people think it is. I will also say the thing, the one thing that never made sense to me was the idea that Russia blew up their own pipeline for some reason. That that didn't that seems uh, that seemed very unlikely. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, I don't think like I think that obviously Charlie Kirk and Fox News and all those people, you know, they're you know as uh, as my wife said to me. When I was in the middle, I was in like the sort of break between the main part of my debate with Charlie Kirk and the sort of post game part that they did, and she she came up and and uh, you know I was still sitting there um, and uh, she was and, sewing and, your upper and, eyebrows. And, 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 yeah, and she uh, and, and 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 she she and she leaned over and muttered, "This guy's a fucking idiot." Uh, was 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 the exact quote from uh, Dr. Jennifer Burgess, but like it's. Um, so look, I don't, I don't, I don't think that you should believe anything because those guys say it. But I also don't think it's a good idea to just go through life putting a automatically putting a plus wherever they put a minus and vice versa. Especially because where those guys put a plus and where they put a minus has a lot to do with what the partisan valences of this stuff at any given time. I mean, it's like look at the difference. Look at all the like surveillance stuff that like all the Fox News people said when Bush was president that if you were against it, you were basically on the side of Al-Qaeda. And then when Obama was president, suddenly they thought they had major civil liberties concerns. And then all that stuff went away again, you know, when, uh, when, when Trump was president. I mean, they're clouds, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't say, oh, whatever the opposite of what these guys say is true. Because, you know, yeah, I mean, like sometimes the sort of like their own incredibly stupid, hacky partisan reasons for saying things, you know, sometimes they'll say true things. Most of the time, they'll probably say bullshit. But I think we should figure out what makes sense to us without checking in on what they think first. Right. We've been talking with Chris Ben, Professor Ben Burgess, author of Christopher Hitchens: What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. Uh, to be continued. I, I find this. CIA uh, blowing up the the pipelines uh, disconcerting coming from, enough. coming from the right. I just it just when they're saying sure. it, I, I I know the CIA. We just talked about what they try to kill Castro. I know they mm. do those things. Uh, thank you, Professor. If if. If uh, if DeSantis is president in uh, in in uh, 2025, they will all recover their love for the CIA and the FBI as if nothing had ever happened. <laughs> it's 
Thank you, Professor. Thank you, Comedian. Joining us is Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. He's a Freudian psychoanalyst. And also with us is Ethan Hershenfeld, the author of... Hang on. Hello. Hello. Am I visible? What's going on with my camera? Today is now. Author of Today is Now. Hello. We we can't... Are you... I know what you're... Are you using OBS? I don't know what OBS is. That looks like the OBS insignia. What the hell is happening? This has never happened before. That looks like one of the tattoos on the arms of the Azov Brigade (laughs) and the Wagner Group. Take that off. How do I... What's happening? Uh, I don't know. Can you start your video? I have started it. Now I'm going to stop my video and I disappear. Okay. I'm going to just uh, go away. I'll come back. No, no, it's okay. We can hear your voice. You can play the role of God. Yeah, but I'd like to see him. Could Try once more. Come on. All right. I get inspiration from looking at there, there I am. But I'm going to, I'm going to, no, I'm just going to leave and come back, like full on leave. Okay, full on leave. So, Dr. Hershenfeld. Yes, Dr. Feldman. My, thank you. Thank you for calling me that. Uh, Happy New Year. I said Happy to Happy New Year to you. Thank you. I said to my son, we have to talk every day from now on. Uh, what was happening was everything, there you are. There he is. What was happening, every time we talked, it would be for like an hour, and it was nonstop jokes. And what ha- what began to happen is, oh, I don't have the energy to talk to, I don't have it, I don't have an hour, and I don't, I can't keep making jokes. And I said, let's have shorter conversations, check in for, you know, three or four minutes each day. Cannot believe that I'm saying this to a child of mine, that that I can, let's talk five minutes today. How about this? <clears throat> the jokes can be a defense against real intimacy. Yes. Okay. Really? Sometimes, sometimes intimacy can actually be a defense against jokes. <laughs> True. Sometimes what people are really trying to get to is the humor, and they just get stuck in all of the caressing. <laughs> That's a good point. If you had told me when this kid, my kid, was yay high, that uh, I would think I don't have time to talk to him today, or it's like uh-huh. I, I go, you're you're out of the question. There comes a time when everybody that's how often should a father talk to a son? Whenever, whenever they misbehave, that's it. Do you now do you call? Do you, I don't want to ask personal questions. Here. No, no, no. no. Yeah. We, we, we call each other. We call each other. But yeah. he has a very particular style. My father is an interesting combination of a deep listener and conversationalist and an impatient practitioner of the OCD arts. <laughs> so at a certain at a certain point in a conversation, he will go, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it's never it's never 
Uh, good to talk to you. Good talk. It's always this. Um, I got a thing I got to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. I got. I got agenda. Yeah, I got it. Um, okay, I'm gonna gonna move along. <laughs> this is why it's better for families to live on top of one another. This well, is this is I begged my in my previous life. I said nobody leaves. Everybody stays here. You don't need to go off. Just stay here. We'll li all live on top of one another, and that way you're, you're spending quantity time instead of quality time. And, and I think I think that's better. It's also I think it increases the likelihood of having quality time because what are the odds that any given hour will have quality in it? Right. So just increase increase the denominator. And uh yeah, I think that that's a good approach. It that's also, also the origin of the bunk bed. <laughs> and you can really stack the family number. Just keep it keep keep it very vertical. You can have a house that's just 8 feet wide. No problem. Just I saw some pictures, Dr. Hershenfeld, of the blackout in Cuba. And they they were playing games, dominoes, and it was just they I'm sure they were frustrated. It sure seemed that it was a slower pace with a lot less aggravation. And much more community. We don't have so much community here. Right. Or if we do, you got to purposely work at it. But, um, you know, when, when people have very little but each other and they live close by each other, I think there are benefits to that that we do not get. Mm-hmm. They, they also have the benefit of still driving cars in which you can procreate in the back seat. <laughs> Those things, <laughs> right? There's no car. Try to try to procreate in a Prius. Good luck. <laughs> you can't even jerk off in one of those things. Hey, <laughs> this is a family show, isn't it? Dave? Yeah, no, not that kind of family. <laughs> uh, yeah, the. the uh... Yes, I'm, I'm, I apologize, Doctor Philip Hershenfeld, for the filth <laughs> emanating from from my guest. Show a little respect. Ethan <clears throat> wanted me to tell a story. Good tonight on Sukkis. On Sukkis, it's not Sukkis yet. When is that? That's like in ten days, right? No, it's 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 this Sunday night. So we're all. Oh my God! There. It's perfect. It's now, perfect. Where are you? Explain. David, I hate to ruin a good joke by saying this is the funniest joke you're ever going to hear, but I'm going to ruin this by saying this story is, I, I predict within three minutes, you're actually going to fall out of your chair. You're going to love this story. So this is. Let me called, back up and say the sukkah for the Gentiles in the audience is what's known as a, it's like a, it's sort of like a, sort of like a, a, a taco truck without the truck. A booth. It's just a, a what? A booth. A booth. A coop. It's like a chicken coop, except there's no chicken. There's just squash and gourds and a citron. Don't is that? Isn't there like a lemon type fruit? Or my yes, yeah, but, That's but right. you're supposed to 
live or at least eat in these booths through the holiday of Sukkot to remember that this is what our forefathers lived in when they escaped from Egypt. It was right in between escaping from Egypt and developing lots of condos. <laughs> this is what they were doing in that interval. But I would assume some people live in the booth. Yeah. And you're supposed to have a roof. The whole thing's supposed to be impermanent. And you're supposed to be able to see the stars up through the roof. So it's like a lattice work. So this story is called The Great Sukkah Caper of approximately 1952, let's say. I can't be exactly sure. But I was a kid. L let me start by saying I was not a nice kid. I had many faults. I was greedy. I was, I was fat. I couldn't get enough to eat. So, so um, our, our conservative temple <clears throat> had this beautiful sukkah every year which probably fit 200 people who could all participate. And for weeks before Sukkot, all the Hebrew school children would spend their time stringing various type of candies. I specifically remember Hershey's Kisses in those tin foils. And they would string them and they would hang them from the roof of the sukkah and, and all sorts of other candies, none of which was I allowed to eat <clears throat> at home because I was fat. <laughs> so my mother and I had this constant warfare whenever, whenever she bought cookies or cake, she would hide it somewhere in the kitchen and I would go find it and eat it. So one sukkah, one sukkot, a bunch of us, and I don't remember if I was the ringleader, but a bunch of us, say, say six, 11, or 12-year-old kids, start thinking we would like that candy. How are we going to get it? So it was a Saturday afternoon. We drove our bikes up behind the temple. We climbed up on the roof and started pulling the candy out and stuffing it in our mouths <laughs> or stuffing it in our pockets. And um, it was a lot of fun. And when we got as much as we could possibly eat and carry, we clambered down the side of the sukkah and then we were suddenly struck with fear. Oh my God, we're going to get caught. They're going to kill us. But nevertheless, we all split up. We rode home. We probably secreted the candy here and there so our parents wouldn't see it. But there was this constant anxiety all day long. I'm going to get caught. 
And then there was a miracle, <laughs> a, a second miracle of Sukkot. The first miracle, I guess, was the splitting of the Red Sea. This was a much later miracle. That night in northeastern Pennsylvania, very far away from the coast or any large bodies of water, there was a hurricane. <laughs> it blew down the entire Sukkah, flat as a pancake, because I went to visit this. And this crime, and probably until now, now somebody's going to pinch me. This crime until now was never discovered. No one even thought that anything like that happened. And that was the... Uh, Paper of 70, 70 years to the day. Yes. Today is the 70th anniversary of the of that hurricane. So do you think God sent that hurricane well, to help do, you? A lot of people you think, Do you think the CIA blew up those pipelines? <laughs> I think God. God, God blew down the damn sofa. <laughs> yes. Because he knew how penitent I was and how I wished, wished above all wishes, that I had never gotten engaged in this. <laughs> right? So have you held that guilt for all these years? That's a good question. You know, I, I think guilt is probably one of those everlasting things that you can mitigate it a little. And I can come up with reasons why there should be a statute of limitations on this crime. But probably down deep, you know, there's there's at least a smidgen of that guilt. Yes. Can I ask you a personal? Let me ask Ethan a personal question. Yes. You, you volunteered <laughs> that you were... Uh, you had a, a weight problem when you were a kid. You couldn't wait to eat. <laughs> that you. So what do you think your grandmother did right? Because your father is in great shape. Oh. So what, what did, would you say it was good parenting that got him healthier or... His own self motivation. That's a good question. Um, Without getting personal. No, no, no. I'm tempted What's to get personal. I'm tempted to crack a joke, but instead, I don't know how related this is. But she was, she was, in the most extreme way, a child of the depression, and she was an oldest sibling of, and she had to have a lot of responsibility in the depression. So I remember as a kid visiting there, and she would actually water down the milk to like stretch the milk and she would save the salt from the pretzels, literally save the salt from the pretzels under the sink to then use on the stairs when they froze in the winter. Wow. So there was probably something See, like I find that. that. I find that beautiful. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I'm a fan of that, all those things. But I think that that might've had something to do with your food, Michigas, because there had to be a sense of, of, of lack or a sense of, you know, I know someone else who told me about this. He was hanging out with a friend whose father had been in the war 
and they went for a hike. And the way the father was distributing little pieces of snacks or chocolate during this long hike was making him ravenous. So I think there's a way that someone who who is convinced that they don't have enough could make the people around them extremely hungry. And that could lead to a kid wanting to just binge and eat everything in sight. Because the, the, the parents give off this feeling like, you know, we might not have any more food tomorrow. So that's my little theory. Well, I, 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 the three things I think that we lie to ourselves and others about is sex, food, and money. Which, uh, that's, I was going to go for a chocolate. But what do they give? Forget it. I was going to make it. But uh, with food, I find if I'm living with somebody else and they bring food into the apartment, I want it. I, I want especially sweets. Living with other people makes it very, uh, there's too much temptation to eat their food. But if I live alone, I have a very disciplined. What, what, are, what are your insights, Dr. Hershenfeld, in all seriousness about hunger and not... Ooh. Food represents other things. It can represent love, for example. Yeah, like if a chocolate is shaped like a heart, that's food representing love. Yeah. Um, so sometimes if you're feeling a lack of something emotional, you can fill yourself up with food as a substitute. Um, the other issue is, you know, foie gras? Yes. Now, it's made in this very inhumane way of stuffing food down the goose's gullet. But the Israelis found a much more humane way to make it. They feed a flock of geese or ducks till they stop eating. And then they bring in a hungry flock of geese or ducks and mix it in with the full flock. That those ducks start eating. The other ducks who are completely filled wow. start stuffing themselves. Wow. That's I, amazing. I, I've noticed this in myself. I'm a fairly disciplined eater. But if I go out, especially in a big family group, all bets are off. It's something about that group phenomenon and everybody eating and eating different things. I think it's a, it's a, it's a primitive, it's a primitive competitive uh, instinct. It all goes, it's a very uh, uh, early, early man didn't have a lot to eat. If there's something, if someone's eating, you, it's just a natural instinct to eat what they're eating. It's so interesting that they figured that out. The other way the Israelis figured out, to get the geese who are stuffed to keep eating is through guilt. <laughs> what, you're just going to let that sit there? You're not going to help? So I cooked all day and you're not going to eat it? Fine. Who's going to eat it? Uh, eat it. There's starving geese in Europe. Yeah. Right. Fragua sound could be a Yiddish word. <laughs> right. 
Oh, I heard someone made a great mistake today that I loved. So our little dog's name is Fafner. Fafner, and for short, it's Fafi. But this vet, this vet called her Farfel. Hmm. <laughs> Farfel, which is a very cute name for a dog. Right. And it's, very- it's like a little. It's not a dumpling. It's like a little. It's bit like a of carbo- It's like a little carbohydrate. Yeah, it's with like matzo. it's matzo farfel. It's just broken up matzo into little bits. But there was a children's book. The hero of the book was Farfel the goat. Oh, the yodeling goat was that Farfel yeah. the yodeling goat? I'm, I'm not sure about oh, that. That was someone else, the yodeling goat. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so Farfel. Yeah. Okay. How was uh, yesterday? What did you go to services? Did you stay home? I, I can't speak for the doctor, but I could tell you I did I didn't pray, I didn't atone, I didn't fast, and yet it seems so far that I was written into the book of life. Good <laughs> work. At least so far. The okay. bitter end does a jazz I'll send you I was gonna send you the link. The bitter end does a jazz service. Unbelievable. Well, it, it, uh, I fasted and read and I read. Nice. Uh, but I drank coffee. I had two cups of coffee. And is that is that bad? That's well, fine. it's That's not fine. following the whole rules. Now, I know somebody who gets a headache from lack of caffeine on um, Yom Kippur. So he takes caffeine pills. Cheating, cheating, yeah, cheat. Well, but it's not as bad as drinking a cup of coffee. It's what worse, is- and let me explain why. <laughs> I, from the perspective of the rabbinic tradition, when we get into the subject of medic, medic, medicaments, medicamenti, no, I don't know. Um, I, um, I think I, I fasted a few times in my life on that big fast day, but I, I, I just didn't have it in me. Not motivated. Not motivated. All those years being sent to a yeshiva and you weren't, it made you less devout? I was, I, I'm not, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not devout. I don't have a devout bone in my body. So what was the, I have that gene, really. Well, and what was the thinking? He gets the education. I don't care what, if he believes in any of that stuff, just as long as he gets the education. That was my approach. I'm not sure it was the smartest thing in the world to do, but but that's what I was thinking. Right. Right. What are you reading? I'm reading something I'm really enjoying. It's called the the uh, the Stone Raft. It's by that Portuguese novelist Saramago, who wrote Blindness. Blindness, which is amazing. I recommend it to anyone. Saramago, and I think he won the Nobel Prize and then died about 20 years ago. But this is a crazy, weird uh, novel. And the premise is some guy is walking on the beach and he throws a stone. And then shortly thereafter, the Iberian Peninsula starts to separate from Europe. Weird geological thing happens. And then the question is, is he to blame? Was it because of that stone? It's funny. Now, do you finish novels? I finish novels, yeah, yeah. And how many how many novels would you say you read a year? Are you a oh, fast reader? I'm not a fast reader. No, I would say maybe 30, 25, 30, 
maybe in a year. I read another one that was short the other day, which I took me a few days, but it's called the, the, the Woman in the Purple Skirt. It's a Japanese novel. It's very short and bizarre, but uh, I'm a and, fan of it. And do you get overwhelmed by books? And it doesn't sound like, it sounds like you have the courage of your convictions. You pick a book, you're monogamous, you stick with it, and you see it all the way through. No, no, no. I'll, I'll quit. I'll, I'm happy to quit or put it down and and uh, move on to something else. Yeah. I have a stack of books. And Dr. Hershenfeld, what are you reading? That's genetic. I've got a stack of books by my bedside also. And I've read anywhere from, you know, 10% to 60% of any of them. And, you know, maybe I'll get through them. Maybe I won't. I, as I get older, by the way, and I don't know if this is an eyesight thing or a brain thing or what the hell it is, but my reading capacity has decreased tremendously. I listen to books. And Are you watching television? I'm not a big TV watcher. No, I watched the other night my well, two favorite movies, The Godfather, of course, and When Harry Met Sally. So I went. I, I watched When Harry Met Sally the other night for the eighth time, maybe. Who knows? That is. I the, love it every time. The best Woody Allen movie ever directed by Rob Reiner. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to mention this <clears throat> I recommended this interview to the doctor but I wanted to recommend it to all your listeners I thought it was just genius and I'm ashamed I haven't gone to see the film yet but it's this movie Bros this romantic comedy uh, by Billy Eichner uh, Billy Eichner who's hilarious Billy on the street if you don't know that show you should watch it but he made a romantic comedy and Judd Apatow produced it and it's about a it's a gay romantic comedy. And his interview, he's interviewed by David Remnick on the New Yorker Radio Hour over the weekend. And I just thought he came off as just, Eichner came off as so smart and funny and knowledgeable. And uh, it was just so impressive. So I am going to go see it in the theaters. And that I recommend people do that just because uh, it didn't do well at the box office, which was a big disappointment. Because right. the idea was that they could make a romantic comedy that happened to be gay that would still... Uh, work for big big audiences right. yeah. i i listened to that i interview, will your recommendation i thought it was terrific great dr philip hershenfeld always great to see you yeah hershenfeld everybody go by let's make this a bestseller today today is now, is now. today is now and um today is now audiobook coming soon but um Today is now on Amazon, The Evil Empire. And um, there it is. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you. We... You're, you're going to have to convince me of that CIA thing, though. I'm, I'm still not convinced. I don't believe. Do you believe the CIA would have blown up? No. Me, I, okay. Yeah, I no. don't believe it. Good. I don't think they're capable. I don't think they're good. <laughs> they have the, the, the smarts to do it. Uh, I, good night. Good night. I think maybe... Professor Burgess said something interesting oh, about it being Ukraine, you know, like rogue elements of the oh. Ukrainian army. I would assume it was the Russians. 
Well, hey, Emil. Toodaloo. Nice to see you. Thank you so much. Guillermo joins us with the answer who blew up the pipelines? Are you also, I think, Dan, are you going to step in later on for a quiz? Yes, sir. I am ready when you are. Okay. Why don't we talk? Do I get to be part of the quiz? You get, yeah, we're going to do 20 minutes. Okay. All right. And then we'll do a quiz and I'll kick your ass. Who blew up the pipelines? That's one of the questions on the quiz. Who blew up the pipelines? Simu Lee or Simu Lu. Who's that? He's the, you know, the Asian American superstar of the moment. Simu Lu. He's in everything now. Celebrity Jeopardy. He's, he's my lucky charm. That's what was going to get me over today. On today's quiz. I have some good news. Rusty Schreiker, Apollo 8 or 9, will be doing the show Monday, October 10th. Peter B. Collins is bringing him in. Wow. Wow, that's big. An Apollo astronaut. I want to say 8, but maybe it's 9. 8 and a half. half. Rusty Schreiker is doing it. This is big for me. Anytime I can talk to an Apollo astronaut... They're, they they are giants among men. They really are. They're they're. It takes a lot to be an astronaut. But I mean, they, these guys were right. Yeah, I, I mean it's a it's a different crowd. Uh, yeah. I not many Filipinos amongst them. There are a handful of Asian American astronauts, but not not of the 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 level of Schweiger. Now Tang is a. Dynasty, does that count for anything? <laughs> the tang? drink, the drink, the drink. Yeah, Tang, the orange juice of champions. They, the faux they, orange they, juice. I read that actually Tang. They stopped right. drinking Tang in outer space because they somebody threw it up, and it was uh-huh. a nightmare. They say Do that, they still make it? Because that was for years. That's what my mom gave me because of the astronauts, because of the space program. We got Tang. Forget we, you know, that was our nutrition. Good enough for the astronauts. You're drinking Tang. I, I never had any orange juice, you know, pulp, no pulp, not Tang. Always Tang. Yeah. But so apparently like, throwing up Tang is a very unpleasant experience. So John Fe- uh, John Fetterman is running yeah. against Dr. Oz. Oh, yeah, yeah. Some new Oz. studies out that Oz was experimenting on hundreds of dogs unnecessarily. More than 300. That That is true. That is uh, something that... Now, I'm speaking not... Let me... A- hang on. You are the host of the PETA podcast, Pe- right. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. The views expressed here are, are my own. Uh, PETA was there fighting uh, Oz back then, and they won. Uh, I think that Oz is a little disingenuous when his spokesperson came out today and said Oz wasn't in the operation room or uh, he wasn't there. It was his project. These are his, you know, this is his research. He signs the line. Uh, but he doesn't do it now. But he did it then. And, you know, he's got a cop to it. There, there is a way to deal with it if he was honest and ethical. But he's just trying to avoid the hit. And, he, he, you know, it would be much better if he just, yeah, 
I was an experimenter. I was a vivisector. I killed all these dogs. I don't do it now. At least we don't know. He could just say, he just be honest. Right now, I just sell lousy diet pills to people who may or may not need them. I don't harm dogs. I harm real animals, human beings, by selling them things on the internet that I, you know, may or may not, uh, you know, test or may or may not have anything, any knowledge of, but it's true. Me as Dr. Oz, I experimented on dogs. You should just come clean. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, yeah. so David, you know, it's October. Rocktober. It's Rocktober. No, no, no. It's Filipino American history month. Yes. October. That too. And and this is a significant because usually you know October it's October. Emil's going to talk about Filipino American History Month. He's probably going to talk about his birthday month. You know that's why, or he's going to talk about Larry Itliong or something, like, or he's going to talk about the first Filipinos to come to America in 1587, Morro Bay, California. They jumped ship. But no, I've got a new tidbit for you and your listeners that could be a a, a, a new quiz. You you are familiar. With the Dred Scott decision, right? Yes. Chief Tawney, I believe, wrote it. Ju Judge Roger Taney. Well, is it Taney or Tawney? I thought it was Tawney. Tawney Katane, I think, wrote yeah. it. Tawney reminds me of some starlet. Taney reminds me of an old grizzled white Supreme Court justice. Anyway, 1857 for that. And um, it, whether you're young and don't know it because your school doesn't teach history or you're older because you have forgotten about history – You'll recall that the Dred Scott decision, and we mentioned this too also because this is the start, October, of the, the, the latest session of the Supreme Court of the United States. This was known, the Dred Scott decision was known as the worst, the most racist case ever, you know, opinion ever that came out of the Supreme Court. You'll recall it deals with a, an African-American slave who was allowed to go to Illinois, where he was a free man, then went back to Missouri, where he began his journey and was sued the state of Missouri for his freedom. And he lost. And Roger Taney wrote the opinion. The Filipino American history bit was the thing, the basis, the justification for the Dred Scott decision was an 1840 decision by Taney on a case involving one Lorenzo Dow, D-O-W, Dow, and he was a Filipino-American. Now, what does a Filipino, well, Phil, he was a Filipino in America. What does a Filipino Lorenzo Dow have to do with Dred Scott? Lorenzo Dow was convicted of murder. He was a a Filipino was on the high seas. He was a mariner. Filipinos, look, I'm such a landlubber. I, I'm a poor swimmer. I, I hate boats. But back then, Filipinos were all about the boats. They were mariners. They were on an American flagship. And he was accused of killing one of the, uh, the heads of the ship. And he was convicted of murder in Maryland. Act was in the high seas. He went to, uh, to Maryland. He was convicted. Roger Taney got the case. And he said, and in the decision, and this is important for people who want to check it out, U.S. v. Dow, Roger Taney explains the basis for white supremacy. And he says, because, because only Europeans, 
white Europeans, white Christian Europeans were allowed to come to America and participate in politics and society. Uh, they were the master, the master race. And anyone else could not testify against these people. Anyone else could, they could not, they were not, they were inferior. Those were the words of Roger Taney. And that decision uh, was the basis for the conviction of Dow to be upheld in 1840. And then later on, when Taney got the Dred Scott decision, he looks back at the, all the previous jurisprudence and says, oh, here's Dred Scott. Is he a free man? No. And the Dow decision is the basis of that. One of the few, I mean, it's a Filipino in America who decides really white supremacy uh, is is the rule of the land here in the United States and that Filipinos in America, all people of color, including Native Americans, African-Americans, they could not participate in society because they weren't white Christians. It, this was the land of white Christians. That was really the upshot of Dow, of U.S. v. Dow, which then became the basis of the Dred Scott decision. So I bring it up because it's a, it's a really fine point of Filipino history in America, but it's critical when you think of how race is still an issue here in America. And you ask people what the Dred Scott decision, you know, was, or what, you know, what, what, what did it do? And I bet you, if you do a jaywalking segment, you ask people what the Dred Scott decision was. And I bet you very few people would even be able to say what it was about. Something with slavery, something with the civil war, you know, mm -hmm. they still teach history. Anyway, Interesting. U.S. v. Dow. It's, it's one of those things that you can go to a bar and say, what do the Filipinos and all people of color, including African-Americans, what was the law that put us all together? And the basis of that law, it was a decision by this guy, Taney, who was very, you know, instrumentally involved in the Dred Scott decision. The decision that really set off the abolitionists, set off the beginning of the Civil War. I mean, Dred Scott, everyone should know the Dred Scott decision, but, you know, we'll have to wait until, you know, what's his name? Ken Burns does a movie about him. Right. Right. Because it just won't matter. And what can people say? You talking anyway. about David Rubenstein's friend, Ken Burns? David, David Ruben. That's uh, right. David Rubenstein's friend. Ken Burns. Uh, Ken Burns. I, I know. You know, when you, I knew you were going to say that, uh, you know, when I started watching it and then I got to the middle of, of the second part of that series. And then we came on and we talked about it and I, I couldn't watch it again. I get, just kept thinking about David Rubenstein. He, David Rubenstein from the Carlisle group is the biggest war profiteer in the world. Yeah. And he funds Ken Burns's projects. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a, uh, you should be able to look aside. You know, this is one thing that my meditation has helped me. I, I, I can look aside people I, I don't like. I can love them, but I don't have to like them. And he's a mixed I, bag, is what you're saying. Well, I'm just saying that. I I guess you could be so, uh, you know, to the letter. I'm not going. You know, it's going to determine everything I do. I'm going to be consistent. It's hard to be consistent, um, but. You might be able to say, well, if Ken Burns is saying something that's important, 
maybe I could look aside. But what is he not saying? Well, you what know, is he that not it, saying if Rubenstein is funny, you know, there must be things he's not saying. Exactly. You know that Rubenstein's in control and there are things that he's like. So yeah, you raise a good point. I, I think that they're, this is a personal decision, a personal matter. And I, but I did stop. I did stop watching the second episode. I said, I know enough. I know enough. Why did Joe Biden spend Thanksgiving last year at David Rubenstein's home? I believe in Narragansett, not Narragansett, in Rhode Island, I think. Rhode Island, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, I and just, then we mysteriously are funding the war in Ukraine. Yeah. What do you think? About what, the war in Ukraine or about David Rubenstein? Or about Biden being connected there? So let me ask you about Ukraine. Yeah. What do you believe? Because I don't know the answers. I know I, what I, I know what I feel in my heart. What I feel in my heart is if Tucker Carlson, Charlie Kirk, and Fox News believe one thing. Mm. You got to be the opposite. Believe the opposite. You got to be the opposite. If they're rooting for Putin, I'm not going to, I don't think that's. Look, if you presume that everyone's dirty, uh, then then you can get into some of the gray areas. I, I think the one of the problems is, or the, the basic question is, does a nation have a right to go in and take over the land of a sovereign? No. And, you know, there's just, I, I don't think there's any, I, there's any justification for that. And that's your basic question. Once you get into that, and if you answer that, I, I think you have well, to. You're a journalist. You are an actual journalist. So, yeah. I got I haven't covered Ukraine, but I've talked about it and I've okay, go ahead. What's your question? I found I had this uh somebody brought on Colonel Dick Black, former Virginia State Senator, who mm-hmm. has now said he thinks it's a sure bet that the CIA blew up the pipelines working with the State Department. Mm-hmm. So I asked him a couple of questions. What else do you believe? This was on Monday. And a lot lot of people appreciated that I asked those questions, but I got some pushback that I was being rude. That was irrelevant. Don't you think as a journalist, if somebody thinks it's a sure bet that the CIA blew up the pipeline, that you should find out what else they believe? Well, isn't that it's telling? Isn't that important? Slightly irrelevant. If you just want to focus on the question at hand, it might get you in a roundabout way to a a broader context of what this guy's about, right? How consistent he is. But I would say I would, you know, if you if he's insisting on that, I'd like to see the proof. You know, and then he's not insisting. He's just saying it's a sure bet. And, and you know, other people, sure bet. Okay. other people I, on the right are saying this. All right. Sure bet is essentially an opinion. And if it's a reported opinion uh, based on something credible, then that's newsworthy. If it's a reported opinion based on speculation, then it should just be labeled opinion and not news. 
And it's like, uh, you know, a lot of other journalistic tricks, uh, you know, headline, you know, U.S. blew up pipeline, question mark. Uh, you know, I, I think you give him uh, room to get his opinion out. You have you, you give you have some room to save yourself from uh, a journalistic sin. You you keep pressuring to find out what the answer is. Uh, and until there's something definitive, you're just reporting someone's opinion. So I think, you know, be polite, be, you can be adversarial, well, adversarial, you just press them, press them to get at the truth. But uh, I don't think people see real journalism anymore. Well, I think they don't, they don't see somebody being grilled and uh, held to account on TV. They're accustomed to somebody stating what they believe, and then being shouted over. But nobody uh, has ever seen, nobody sees a journalist grilling a politician. Well, I I, I think there is some real journalism going on, but I also... In, in not some, on television. Not, well, I think the problem with television is that they are... They're restricted by by the medium. You know what? What can you can't show all? Well, if you've got someone really being grilled in there, and and they're making some kind of, uh, you know, outlandish statement or error, they'll put that on, or they're they're saying something just like totally like um, incredible. Like, uh, for example, when Scott Pelley asks uh, Joe Biden on sixty Minutes, "Is the pandemic over?" and Joe Biden says, "The pandemic's over," that's not really grilling but it is an admission you know you got it out of the the commander-in-chief of the united states that he feels that the pandemic is over and that's that's news i mean so look i i have lots of problems with how 60 minutes does does its stuff but like i said there are you'll find some news on on television but it, it's it's harder uh it it, it costs money. Uh, you got to get the goods. You got to get, pe- I mean, it's a visual medium. So people, it's easier to get real journalism in print, real journalism in say the New Yorker and the magazine. Um, it's real. It's easier to get it in the daily newspaper. Oh, you know what that sound is? Uh-oh. The quiz master is here. Please welcome quiz master Dan Frankenberger. We have 10 minutes. Welcome, Dan Frankenberger, Quizmaster. Hello. Um, today's quiz is brought to you by St. Jude's Hospital because of last show's uh, David's. Thank you. Are, are, they really, are they really sponsoring this? No. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. You're right. Uh, they test on animals. They test on Go, go to uh, www.stjudes.org and uh, give... They don't turn any children away. There was a Danny Thomas joke last episode that has to be accounted for. Thank you. Um, for today's Thank you. quiz, this iconic and macabre uh, American short story writer, poet, and critic died in Baltimore, Maryland in 1849. Today's quiz is oh. on Edgar Allan Poe. Ooh. Let Ooh. me start. Let me get the sound effects machine going. I only got one question in my pocket on Poe. Sorry. Just one. It's going to be tough. Let me just... All right, I got the the sound sound effect machine going. Ah, 
All right. Is that a raven I hear? (laughs) Nevermore. So we have five questions, and Emil is going to go first. Where was Edgar born? Was it Baltimore, New York, Boston, or Puma del Infierno? Okay. I I know it's pro- he probably wasn't born in Baltimore. I bet you he was born in, I'll say, New York. He was born in New York. The correct answer is Boston. <sighs> Good. <laughs> Poe was born in Boston, but he lived in Richmond with his foster parents. He died in Baltimore in 1849. I, I'm telling you, I drive by Edgar Allan Poe way all the time. There? In, in New York? In New York. In Richmond? <laughs> no, they say uh, they take credit for him. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong, but I was wrong. I guess so. <laughs> Raven droppings are in Boston. Okay. All right. Question number two, David, you are first. What was Edgar's biological father's name? Was it Edgar, John, Charles, or David? Edgar. <laughs> Emil. So it's uh, the the choices again are Edgar, what Edgar, Edgar, John, Charles, or David. I don't think he was a junior. I think I think it's Charles. The correct answer is David. (laughs) So nobody has any points, correct? Yeah, that's why you're not winning by that much. Oh, yeah. We're, we're zeroing out here. Hang on, we need our... Okay. Question number three, Emil, you are first. Okay. Sick. I was sick unto death. Which story's opening line is this from? Is it the fall of the House of Usher? The pit in the pendulum? The telltale heart? Or I brought my shoes so I have them? <laughs> From the Jerky Boys, <laughs> I, I I think it's the Telltale Heart. David, uh, give it to me again. Sick. <laughs> I was sick unto death. Which story's opening line is this from? The fall of the House of Usher, the Pit and the Pendulum, the Telltale Heart, or I brought my shoes so I have them. I'm going to say Telltale Heart. The correct answer is the pit and the pendulum. Uh, David, I, I like this, David. We're neck and neck and zero. Zero. Like this I, is the worst we've ever done. I'm waiting for double jeopardy. This is the worst we've ever done. There's a there's a big range in my quizzes between soft and hard, I guess. Question number four. David, you're first. Okay. In the story, The Black Cat, what was the cat's name? Was it Pluto, Hatches, Milo, or Lucky? Lucky. I would have to say Milo. I think he's right. Can I change my answer? No, you cannot. And the correct answer is Pluto. <laughs> Pluto? That's Mickey's dog. I didn't write it. It's a planet. This is this has never happened before. We're gonna break records. Question number five, the last question. Emil is first. 
When did Edgar's wife die? Was it 1839, 1855, 1847, or right before he ate her? <laughs> was her name Annabelle Lee? No. Uh, I think it was before the Dred Scott decision, though, in 1857. So what, what were the three choices again? 18... 1839, 1855, 1847, and right before he ate her. 1855. I'm going with 55. I'm going with 1847. Well, we okay. might have a winner here. Her name was Virginia Eliza Clem Poe, and she died in 1847. Wow. Wow. I won. Wow. So pulling it out. Went to nothing. Congratulations, David. Yeah. Feels I was good. guessing there. I, I don't know anything about Edgar Allan Poe except, you know, like I, all the only the thing I remember reading is the beginning of Lolita, where they quote a poem of Annabelle Lee. I, oh, I never I know got the beginning of Lolita. I know the beginning of Lolita. Have you read Lolita is great to read on an e-reader because you yes. can look up all the words. <laughs> I like Lolita. Hey, uh, by the way, David, I fail. I failed to mention I am in a reading at the theater for the new city, October thirteenth through the sixteenth. It's a it's a virtual reading, so you could be anywhere. It's presented by New York City's Theater for the New City, October third. It's Ishmael Reed, another. Writer of note, his play. The I met him. I, I I said, "Hey, Ishmael." He said, "Call me Mr. Reed." <laughs> he said that. <laughs> he said that. I said, "Hi, hi, Ishmael." He said, "No, no, no. call me Mr. Reed." Wow, what a well, Moby Dick he turned out to be. I, I huh? can I I can bring him on the show. <laughs> Hang on, the audience was applauding. That's a five. Oh. I see. Could yeah, you actually, bring him on? Yeah, he'd come on. He'd come on and talk about the uh, uh, the conductor. Actually, next week is the the stage reading, uh, October thirteenth through. Why don't you bring him on? All right, I'll ask him. I, I will and interview him. him. Yeah, uh, he's you know you know one thing that made me think of him today. They gave out the Nobel Prize in Literature to Annie Arnaud, who is really a great writer, eighty two years old. But does anyone know Annie Erno? I mean, I think more people know of Edgar Allan Poe than Annie Erno. Although, look, that's not a reason why someone should get the Pulitzer. I mean, that was a big debate. Pulitzer whether... or the Nobel? Oh, excuse me, the Nobel. Excuse me, the no. It's not the reason why anyone should get the Nobel because, uh, as you know, Dylan. When Dylan got the uh, the Nobel, that was a big controversy. Is it because he was popular? Because he was, you know, really a great literary artist. Um, anyway, so. I think Ishmael Reed, for the body of his work from the 60s to today, novels, poems, uh, poetry, plays, librettos, uh, I, I think he deserves consideration. I mean, he's uh, a great writer. Anyway, I'm, I'm fortunate to be in his, uh, his, his play, The Conductor, which is what happens when it's sort of like a modern-day version of the Underground Railroad. But uh, the conductor is a columnist who has to find uh, find passage for people who have trouble with 
race and society in America. And it's based on the, uh, you know, do you remember the recall effort in San Francisco that uh, were the uh, woke progressives from the school board and the woke uh, the district attorney were recalled by conservatives. Yes. Uh, so there's, it, it covers that. Plus there's a twist when some of the conservative Asians who were part of this recall effort now suddenly find themselves seeking freedom. And guess what? They need to escape the United States and they, they look to the conductor to help them. And so it's an interesting play. It's a it's a reading, and you know readings are different from. Hello. Hello. What happened, Dave? Did I lose you? Uh, well, I'm here. Oh, readings are readings are different huh? from. Oh, uh, readings are di- now. It says my internet is unstable. I don't know why. Uh, readings are different from uh, actual stage performances. You know, because, I mean, so it's a virtual reading and people anywhere can access it. Anyway, theaterforthenewcity.net. Uh, I just think that the uh, the words of the writer come out, come through loud and clear. And people should check it out. The Conductor, theaterforthenewcity.net. Very good. Well, we're going to take a four-minute break. When we come back, we're going to find out if the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is joining us. We brought in our backup pastor, Dan. Yeah, B- Barry's uh, still in the Northeast, right? Yeah, but he hasn't been feeling well. And, you know, we have a backup pastor here. Oh, okay. Hey, hey, David, also, I may be in New York soon. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to excite you or anything. <laughs> okay. I, if, if you get a knock on your door, it might, it might be. Yeah. So, uh, Emil, read, you're frozen, Emil. Emil Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Read him over at ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. And uh, subscribe to his YouTube channel. Thank you, Emil. Thanks, David. Thank you. Pastor Jonathan Conrad. Hello, sir. It's good to see you. It's good to see you too, my friend. How are you? Good, good. Thank you for your kind thoughts. And I'm reaching out. It's been three months since, uh, you know, I've had some stuff. You were very kind to me and uh, I wanted to thank you. But more importantly, you are the backup pastor here at the David Feldman Show. Oh, there he is. Hello. Oh, Oh, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn joins us. Uh, I, let me just introduce uh, backup pastor Jonathan Conrad, uh, who came in second on America's Next Great Pastor. You couldn't beat the Reverend Barry W. Lynn on David Feldman Presents America's Next Great Pastor. Where do you, uh, where's your congregation? It is in Wilmington, North Carolina. It's St. Paul's Lutheran Church. And how are people doing since the last time we talked? What do they need? Well, a lot of them need a lot of psychiatric help. But uh, aside from that, uh, they're they're doing pretty well. (laughs) We are recovering pretty good uh, in this new, it's not post-COVID, but just like the, the next part of normal. 
And so people have been coming back. People have been watching us on live stream and people are participating. And so I, I think we're in a good spot. I unfortunately have a lot of pastor friends and deacon friends who have resigned from call over the last couple of years. They just had had enough. Because so of COVID, because COVID and people were afraid to show up. To, to it was because of COVID, but I think it was also, it was the tipping point for a lot of other issues that the church faces. And not just the church, I would think that mosques and uh, synagogues and people of various faiths have to deal with this. When you have racial injustice, when you have gender inequity, you have politics that just seems to become the new God for many people. Uh, it was just a lot for pastors to handle and, and church leadership to handle, because no matter what you tried to do, you were going to make someone loudly upset. And it was a time where it felt like conversation. It was the Twitterization, the Facebookization of conversation. Everybody was just yelling at each other. Mm-hmm. What was it? Uh, Brick Tomlin said an anchorman loud noises. So people uh, were quite loud. And so we had to we had to go through a lot. But we had a plan and we stuck to it and made adjustments along the way. But for a lot of people, I mean, I was lucky that I'm part of a staff. I've got another, so I have an associate pastor, I have a deacon. We have, we were always on the same page, but a lot of my friends, they're the solo pastor or they're, they don't have a staff. And mm-hmm. so everything falls on their shoulders. And it's just, it was really hard from a mental health standpoint for many of them. Right. And so, some of them have found new calls. Some have just left the ministry, if not forever, for a little while, just to kind of get their heads straight and right. their hearts back in order. We're talking with Pastor Jonathan Conrad. He's with St. Paul's Evangelical Evangelical Lutheran Church in Wilmington, North Carolina, on 6th Street, 12 North 6th Street. You should go. Everybody should check him out. I'm going to kill the bit Reverend, I'm going to bring you in for a second. The idea was we used to do this at office hours, but Pastor Conrad is a real pastor and and a really funny guy. And the idea was Reverend Barry W. Lynn joins us and he has COVID. How are you feeling? I'm feeling a lot worse than I expected to feel since I am vaccinated I am boosted. And then last week I boosted the booster. And two days ago I got this thing. And all I can think of is how much worse this would be if this had happened four months into the pandemic and there were no drugs to take and nobody knew what what to do about it. And another thing I thought of, um, you know, um, politicians who are equally vaccinated and boosted get this. They always issue a statement that says it is a mild case, but uh, my, mine is not a, what I'd call a mild case. So it proves and I don't want to disparage the clergy in general, but maybe politicians are just better people and they don't have the problems that I have now with all my antiviral drugs in me. Are you on pe- Paxlovid? No, I'm on something else that's a little more uh, benign. Okay. So but I can't the, pronounce it. The idea was 
that I was going to bring in the backup pastor and then you were going to show up and I was just going to hang up <laughs> on Jonathan Conrad. <laughs> And we would just continue. Goodbye. I don't need you. Bye bye. Uh, this is something we used to do at office hours. Yeah. And it was really funny. And I can't do that. You're such a kind man, Pastor Conrad. When my mother was sick, you kept reaching out to me. And and uh, you're a good man. You really are. St. Paul's Evangelical Lutheran Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. How funny can you be? as a pastor? I think I can be pretty funny. Well, I'd like to try to make at least the people laugh every week to kind of loosen the tension because they have to suffer having to listen to me for 12 or 15 or 20 minutes. So you want to try to lighten the mood. I feel like when it, if a church can make someone laugh, it brings a much needed emotion. Mm -hmm. uh, now, if I'm funny, that's another question. Uh, it, it depends. I, I think as I've gotten at this congregation now over five years, the people get my humor and people are a lot more free to laugh or roll their eyes. If I on purpose make a bad joke, mm -hmm. you know, like a dad joke or we call them pastor jokes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I, I try to do that. But people know when I'm serious and people know when I'm trying to ease the tension. And a lot of that is I grew up, at, my idol was Robin Williams and just his improv and the way he could really, for me, de-escalate a room. And that was always kind of my go-to. Right. And so that that's kind of, uh, I guess it's a strength of mine. I know uh, Joe said, are Lutherans evangelical? Yes, but the evangelical Lutheran church in America that's that's the uh, the evangelicals that are not assholes. Just to <laughs> clarify. Uh, now there are now look there are some in my my brethren in the ELCA and sisterin is it sisterin? You know they say brethren. I, I try to be ecumenical, but uh, I I've, I've always not liked that they've had evangelical in the name just because for me the the bad guys took it over and it's it's not coming back and so i kind of say just like the lutheran church in america yeah. but um yeah so uh, we're we are the more open uh type of denomination if you're gay or lesbian lgbtqia most of our churches are friendly some are have it in their statements others just say all means all that's what we do all means all and we've been really concentrating though not just on our LGBTQIA people who are seeking or need a place, but really to make people feel like they've been left out, depending on who they voted for, if right. they're conservative or liberal, because I feel like it's that's kind of where we're going now. But right. it that's I I think that we're we're making headway. We get a lot of new people and people who are happy to be there. You're a great kind person, and uh, I should have you on. Uh, with uh, Colleen next time. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Fully clothed. Fully yeah. clothed, of course. Yeah, that would, uh, uh, that would be good. But you're really um, kind. And, I, you know, I've been thinking about you. Uh, you. You reached out when my mom was sick and you kept uh, texting me. And uh, and I, I really appreciate it. You, and, you're uh, welcome. And... Uh, let's Can I be honest with you too? I was gonna 
I remember you shared a wonderful moment that you had with one of your comedian friends. And I really was going to take a moment tonight to offer condolences and then say, oh, by the way, I also have this script I'd like for you to read and see if you can <laughs> give it to you. <laughs> it's, been, it's been three months and I'm kind of coming out of the haze. I've been on autopilot for three months and uh, but uh, I got to be honest with you. I think I don't think you're ever fully out of the haze. I, I lost my dad 12 years ago. And now it's kind of a seasonal haze, like right yeah. around his his death date. I, yeah. I go through a kind of a bad down time. Yeah. So but now it, it's the gut punches aren't there anymore. Right. But there were there were lively action gut yeah. punches for a long time. So just yeah. well, I, know I what you're to going through is normal. I'm blessed, Pastor, because I hated my mother. So uh, <laughs> also that my prayers did work. So. <laughs> My mother loved this kind of stuff. It's, it's, I, I was talking to my sister. I mean, to the very end, she was making jokes. We were talking. I mean, to the point where I don't want to go into specifics, where she could no longer talk. She was like making. Uh, she said something like she offered to tip the nurse. Two dollars, if if you if she could make her feel better, and we laughed so hard. And this was like one of the last things she said. I'll give you two dollars if you can make me feel better. The idea that she was willing to offer two—it was so funny that she wouldn't go any higher than two dollars. I think that's like one of the last things I I heard her say. Uh, I wanted to ask Dr. Lynn something too. Uh, just uh, how are you doing, sir, from the uh, from a faith perspective over the last couple of years since COVID hit? I mean, how are you doing? No, I I actually think um, my sense of the spiritual has actually deepened over the past two years. In part, it's just because um, as a kind of um, not just an acceptor of biological evolution, but I do believe that as a species, as a race, a human race, we're actually getting better, not worse. A lot of people think the opposite, but I think that the, when you look in, at the positive things that came out of this misery of the last two and a half years and all of the deaths and all of the bad bad recurrent illnesses still we got through this i think we learned something from it and i think we overall with the exception of uh our non-friends on the far right i think the church actually bucked up and did did a lot of good during that period. And, uh, you know, I did a, I did some sermons over the internet. There were interesting little things to do. And I also found that, uh, now that I've moved to Massachusetts, I don't live in DC anymore, that, um, the people up here, various churches we were trying out, um, they, they seem to be more open 
to the kind of diversity you just described, not necessarily the LGBT stuff, although some are open and affirming congregations of the United Church of Christ. But I think we got through this, and we have we have seen that things can get better. And I believe that that's the best thing that came out of this for me. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, I found a lot of strength. I actually started doing a devotional just about every day, and it became a journal and spending a lot of time in the prophets. Are, are you familiar, David, with the, the prophets? That's Old Testament yeah. stuff? Yes. Yes. Oh, I thought and, it was uh, money. I thought it was when you made more money than you yeah, spent. Yeah, like yeah, Old Testament Yeah, because David stuff. knows all about that. Yeah, that's Old Testament stuff. Oh, uh, close, close. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I believe that that's why your Bible's uh, highlighted in, in dollar green. I believe. Yes, that's right. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I, yeah, so I found a lot of strength in that, and I, I feel like at times when I feel like I just want to shut down or shut up, that if if someone is not trying to bring people together, then then what the heck am I doing this for? Right. And. But I, and I don't apologize trying to be friends to everybody. I, I think sometimes people perceive a pastor doing that just it's an act or they're trying to get something. Me, I just I just I don't want people to hate me. <laughs> so, you know, the best way to do that is to treat people well, respectfully. And uh, over time, you can find strength with one another. It does take time. And I'm, I'm certainly glad that uh, Dr. Lynn feels that way, although I was going to beg him for a job in D.C., but God God forbid I go up to Massachusetts. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, well. Um, <laughs> Are you in Boston? In that no, area? no. Well, let's not uh, give out. Let's not okay, give out. Okay, no. don't, don't give out. Don't give out your city. <laughs> okay. Let, let's wrap. Let's let's bring back I, Pastor. I, let's bring back Pastor Conrad. Uh, uh, I love seeing him and it's good to see you. Uh, thank you. Tell everybody how to contact you. You're on Twitter. What is your Twitter handle again? I always forget. Sure. It's at PJ Conrad. And it's pretty and funny. Feel free to send me a direct message and I'll send you my email. And, uh, but please no, uh, uh, X-rated pics or anything I, like I that. I learned that the hard way or the <laughs> soft sure? way. <laughs> that's a, that's the appropriate word, but you know that's that's not a, mm. <laughs> that's for another topic. Thank you, Pastor Jonathan Conrad, for everything. You're welcome, you. gentlemen. God bless. Have a great night. Thank you. Thank you. What a sweet man. What a sweet man. Really sweet. Uh, he joined us from prison, where he's. Uh, just I can't. I'm just a horrible human being. No. Joining no. us is the Reverend Barry. <laughs> just. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn. For nearly a quarter of a century, he ran Americans United for Separation of Church and State. He is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, as well as an attorney, a lawyer, a member of the Supreme Court Bar. And for somebody who was whining about how sick he is, you sure look and sound good. Well, thank you for that. Um, I've gotten over 
yesterday's problem, which was that as soon as I started to say anything, I would cough for three minutes. I'm over that. Okay. And it's too bad I didn't get to play the Edgar Allan Poe quiz, but, uh, you know. You know something about Poe. Yeah, I do, because I saw That's, all of the American International uh, Pictures Poe movies starring Vincent Price. Oh. That's well, why I learned everything that way. I'm a big fan of Vincent Price. Well, let's look at some videos, shall we? <laughs> uh, we're, we have no. some videos courtesy of People for the American Way, Right Wing Watch. This is the great Norman Lear's contribution to democracy. He pays people to keep an eye on the the bad people, the, the, the racists, the bigots, the religious freaks who spew hatred and try to divide us. Uh, was there anything in particular or should I just go in the order in which I sent them? Um, let me, I'm trying to, and I had to actually have notes here because I'm, I, I wasn't, well, what's, well, let me go what's, with, what about that one, what, who, the guy that was praying for people to die, who, who's oh, the woman, Which one? Oh, the woman, yes, the woman, I liked her. Yes. Uh, why don't we start there? Okay. This is, let me just, I, I let me get lined up here because I have, uh, I believe her name is Candace Keller and she's a mm. former Ohio state legislator. And you do not want to oppose her. Here we go. Let me choose this file. Once I get my system down, you, you'll it'll be better. Give me a second. Okay, sure. Yeah, just give me a second. Let me find her, and then we're good to go. Candace, here we go. You know, I had another office holder, county office holder, came to me. About a year or two later, similar. He actually said almost the same thing to me. He said, we're going to take you out. And we're going to take down that pregnancy center. And I said, you can hate me all you want, but you hate the work of God, and I'm not responsible for what happens to you. And you know what? It wasn't a month later that that man was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, advanced. And the man who brought me that message, who was the mayor of a small town in my area, suddenly got sick, got an abscess in his stomach, and died. Now, we're living in a time, and I'm nobody, but we're living in a time where God has had it with the mouthy mainstream media. I'm sick of Hollywood. I'm sick of the lying and the shutting down of free speech. And you know what? I would just advise you to be still and let God handle it. Because by the time God is done with your enemies, he can do way more than you ever could hope. That's Candace Keller. You know why I like her? Reverend? Because of her hair? The hair. 
I think yeah. she believes that. So many politicians lie and hide and are doing things for money or political expediency. I think she truly believes what she's saying. Don't you? Absolutely do. And uh, this is part of a tradition with which I'm very familiar of imprecatory prayer. And imprecatory prayer, many people think it comes just from the Psalms. And there are like uh, half a dozen or dozens saw, Psalms that suggest that praying for damage to your enemies is a noble thing to do. And uh, so here's why it's of importance to me. Some years ago, there was a, a pastor in Texas named Jeffress, who later became the head of the Donald Trump uh, Jesus Regatta. And uh, he, he had taken books, anything with a GLBTQ theme, uh, he didn't like them, and he didn't like that they were in the library. So he told his congregation to go and check out the books and then never return them. And then, so I got wind of this and I wrote him a long note and I said, you know, uh, we don't know each other, but um, I think what you're doing is really terrible. In fact, I think what you're doing is called theft and there's even a commandment against it. So he then, he then talks to a friend of his in California, another pastor who had a radio ministry named Wiley Drake, which sounds like a cartoon character. And Wiley Drake started to pray imprecatory prayers against me so that my children would get sick, my wife Aww. and I would die. That's sweet. And yeah, it's, it was, it was love. And so, um, and then he called me up and I, I talked to him and I said, whoa, that's it. But he, uh, he was quite committed. And then some years later, he, he got a little more attention when he started praying imprecatory prayers against Barack Obama, who was president at the time. And that, that gave him even more notoriety. But these imprecatory prayers are uh, very much a part of not only the Psalms, but you can even find them because Christians often said, well, we don't do that. But then there are some passages in the so-called New Testament that call on people to do the same thing. Galatians suggests that uh, if anyone is preaching a different gospel, you should pray for their death. Hmm. In the book of Revelation, uh, martyrs in heaven are reportedly petitioning God to avenge the blood of the martyrs. So there's a lot of bloody stuff. But this imprecatory prayer thing is, uh, I had a friend who was also the subject of imprecatory prayers from a pastor in Texas where he lived. And um, he, he was thinking of actually filing a lawsuit against the guy praying for his death. And I think in the hopes that it would go to trial and then the pastor would say, well, it's, it's just a prayer. Right. And then he could say, so you don't believe in the power right. of prayer? That's brilliant. You want to get a gun? That's brilliant. But Yeah, it was. But but he wanted me to go in with him because that, that pastor was also praying for my death. So I had two, two of them 
praying for my death. Would the Secret and, Service come after you for praying for the president? That's a very good question. And I think the answer is probably they would not. They well, would not. All right. Let's play some more clips. These are cur yeah. courtesy of Norman Lear's People for the American Way. Let's do the resistance chicks, shall we? Okay, absolutely. These are the resistance chicks. Let me see if I can play it this way. We can't pray in schools? Wait, wait, wait. Dr. Benjamin Rush, one of the top three of our founding fathers, said that kids need to be trained according to the Christian religion. This is the most essential part of education. You guys, we have to get it out of our mindset that reading and writing and arithmetic are the most essential part of education. We have bought into their lies, we, we, and we regurgitate back their lies. That's one thing you're going to put on the belt of truth today. Stop saying that. School is not just for reading, writing, and arithmetic. If you read our founding fathers, they said the most essential part of education is that they know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And I am not afraid to say that. And we have to say that. See, I don't mind people putting words in the mouths of, of the disciples and Jesus. Right. But you can't put words in the mouth of our founding fathers, can you? Because well, we know precisely what they said on the subject, don't we? Yes, you, you do. But there is a whole cottage industry, and we're going to get to this, I think, with another clip uh, of pseudo-historians who would make the case that you just heard. That is that the schools were designed to teach people the heart of Christianity. And so it's completely false. There were very few public schools at the time that she's even talking about. But the ones that were there uh, for a long time, uh, they didn't even think about this. In some places, the only textbook they had to teach reading was uh, Pilgrim's Progress. But that doesn't mean that that's what they were inculcating in the youth of uh, the late 1700s. And, and Dr. Benjamin Rush, I think, is like one of the forefathers of American psychiatry, psychiatry. Yes, he um, he was also one of the founders of the college that I went to, Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. He um, he was one of the uh, stalwarts. And did he really say what she said? He said no, no. I can't. I do not believe he ever said that. Okay. So that would be the resistance chicks. Uh, and now let's, let me see here. I want to. How about go, go to David Barton since I'm alluding to his pseudo historian. Yes, good call. Yeah. There. David Barton. This is a short clip from David Barton. Who is David Barton? Uh, David Barton is a guy who went to Oral Roberts University, got a bachelor's degree there in uh, Christian education. But now he's become an incredibly important historian. He writes a lot of books about the founding of the country. And he also claims to have, and there's some evidence that this is true, close to 100,000 documents from people at the beginning of the country that he believes justifies his belief that 
this country was established as a Christian nation. He's wildly popular. He gives hundreds of sermons and speeches every year. He's beloved by the right-wingers in Congress. He often goes and shows his slideshows and does his lectures uh, to large numbers of members of the House and Senate. And uh, he's a pseudo-historian. And I say that because he makes stuff up that's not true. But why are we doing this? What are we... We're in the wrong... We're in the wrong business. We need to be doing this. Here's David Bart. Okay, here's David Bart. The Constitution is a God-given document based on God's Word. And if you stay out of that, you're not allowing God's Word to have the impact it wow. needs in the nation wow. because it takes God-giving people who honor the Constitution to elect the leaders who honor the Constitution, which allows God's principles to work in a nation. <laughs> yep. He, he and Newt Gingrich are very close. And uh, Newt also has this, after his however many divorces he had, but he he now does tours, now that he has really nothing to do, he actually recommends people come to Washington and take tours of government buildings that in in the the mindset of of, uh, of Newt and his latest wife uh, demonstrates what Barton just said, that the Bible is the centerpiece of everything that this country is built on. And he just tells huge whoppers. One of the ones that he says all the time, he says that why the, con- the first Congress printed the very first version of the Bible. And it sounds good, and maybe they, but it's, it's completely false. It, it, it's um, the first Bible was printed in the United States in 1782 by a Pennsylvania printer uh, by the name of Robert Aitken. And Robert Aitken, the only th- connection to Congress he had is when he published this version of the Bible, he wrote to somebody in Congress and said, could you have the chaplains there review this manuscript? But he published it. Congress had nothing to do with it except possibly to pass it on to their own uh, employed uh, chaplains. So, and, and he makes up, for a long time, he tried to peddle a quote like this, that this when when he's asked about the separation of church and state, he'd say, "Well, uh, Jefferson did talk about a wall of separation, but the wall is omnidirectional, unidirectional, one side only. It's to keep government out of the church and not to keep the church out of government." Now that sounds like a wonderful quote. Uh, unfortunately. Jefferson never said anything like it. And when he put it in a book uh, back about 25 years ago, um, we and some legal scholars, we at Americans United, asked the publisher why they were publishing these things that were lies that he just made up. And the publisher actually withdrew the book. Well, that's good. That is good. 
Good for but you. I mean, he is like so many of these politicians today that literally they say something that's false and then they figure that in order to prove it, they should just say it again. Right. It's the kind of the Herschel Walker approach to uh, abortion. Well, I have a surprise for you, Reverend. What? Is I, Herschel coming on the show? I have a bonus clip for you. Here is. Really? Okay. Here is your friend Newt Gingrich. I played this earlier, defending Herschel Walker. I talked to Herschel about this this morning, and I've known Herschel a good while. Uh, I think he's a remarkable person. I think he's the most important Senate candidate in the country because he'll do more to change the Senate just by the sheer presence, by his confidence, by his deep commitment to Christ, by the degree to which he is. You know, he's been through a long, tough period. He had a lot of concussions coming out of football. He suffered PTSD. I like that. Yeah. I like the fact that he has a lot of concussions, a lot of PTSD, and uh, a commitment to Christ. In any way, are those connected, <laughs> Reverend? <laughs> you know, um, Herschel Walker, first of all, the idea that he has had concussions and that that could have caused him some brain damage, uh, people for a while... I think we're past this, but they said, well, you shouldn't even mention that. It's a serious illness. But the problem is concussions like he had don't heal. They don't go away. So you're basically saying, well, if he says stupid things, don't worry about it. He'll just be in the Senate for six years. Right. And that's unjustified. That is crazy to think about it. And Newt Gingrich, you know, who actually had several spouses, that's no problem with that. But, you know, he he left one of them uh, when she was dying. And I just, you know, if this is going to be the banner, if this is going to be the guy who we are supposed to look up to for his moral fortitude, I would say Newt and Herschel Walker, uh, they could form a little church and uh, they could probably get a bunch of other liars and thieves into it. But it's not right. It's not right. Here's somebody no. I like. Deanna Lorraine. Oh. <laughs> talking about the weather. You know, a lot of people talk about the weather, but they, they don't do anything about it. We understand that the deep state, they have weather manipulation technology. They have DARPA. They know how to manipulate and create big storms, hurricanes, tornadoes, climate change, etc. And these huge hurricanes always seem to target red states, red districts, and always at a convenient time, typically right before elections, uh, or, you know, in this case, possibly because Ron DeSantis has been stepping out of line a lot and challenging fighting the deep state. I don't know, Lauren, the timing is definitely interesting, and they're even saying it. Do you think this could be a weather-manipulated hurricane? Yeah, well, we know the technology does exist. And right. I mean, Deanna, they're literally trying to change people's DNA through vaccination. Of course, they would be willing to do something like this to target red states. I have no doubt. I mean, the technology exists to manipulate weather. And, um, you know, this whole storm coming, 
Uh, I mean, I know that Florida is uh, prone to hurricanes. However, this developed into a cat four oh, or cat five overnight. Right. And it does seem to be hitting uh, the uh, the conservative areas of the right. state. Um, you know, you and I don't I, I I'm not putting it past the elites uh, to target something like this towards Florida as punishment uh, for uh, getting rid of vaccine mandates or getting rid of child grooming. They are angry with us and it wouldn't surprise me to find out. And yeah, the technology does exist, um, but you're not supposed to talk about that or know about that because that's controversial or a conspiracy theory. No, it's true. That makes a little sense to me. Uh, how little sense does it make? <laughs> well, you know, it is interesting that hurricane season just happens to be around the time we have elections. That does yep. seem suspicious to me. It seems to hit red states, you know, uh, Florida, Louisiana, uh Southern Georgia. Southern Georgia, South Carolina. South Carolina. And they can manipulate the weather. I, I know that Marjorie Taylor Greene talked about Jewish space lasers. Didn't she say the forest fires yeah. were? Yeah, from by? Jewish space lasers. I, perhaps uh, Deanna Lorraine and Lauren Witzke uh, who both of these people, people should know, they both ran for elective office recently. Really? Yeah. Um, uh, Deanna Lorraine ran against Nancy Pelosi. She got 4% of the vote. Whoa, and, whoa, whoa. whoa. Uh, she ran yeah. against Nancy Pelosi? Yeah. Did she, yeah. Who did better, Deanna Lorraine or Shahid Buttar? <laughs> Buttar came in second. Okay. Whew. Yeah. And and way, way down the list. Fourth, fifth, sixth, I don't know. That was uh that was uh, Deanna Lorraine. And Lauren Witzke ran for the Senate uh in twenty twenty maybe twenty eighteen in the state of Delaware. And she, she didn't do too well either. But this is they've now got a new gig, and that is to interview each other and make these astonishing, uh, complicated uh, claims about what is possible and isn't possible. But, you know, if you think I'll give you this when if you ask them, how can this be done? They would say, well, with God, all things are possible, which is a central belief of many, many conservative, ultra-conservative Christians. But it doesn't really answer the question of why God would help the elitist snobs in America to do these weather changes so dramatically. It makes no sense. But remember what I said last week when I was talking about DeSantis is what the speech that I was hoping he would give. He was going to he needed to deal with the fact that Pat Robertson does think that he can change the direction of hurricanes. And as I mentioned last week, he, he diverted one that was about to hit his empire in Virginia Beach. It came up here and hit in Massachusetts. And um, But there, there is this widespread belief that God somehow has 
can be manipulated, and therefore the weather God presumably created can also be manipulated. And, uh, you know, if you get into this, if you listen, if you listen to like a whole week of clips from uh, Norman Lear's uh, uh, right wing watch, you would start to see patterns. You would, and, and you'd say, "Well, wait a minute. Maybe it does start to make sense." And that's what I'm afraid. Even voters are doing. They listen to so much crap. They listen to so many lies. But when the lies start to be repeated by someone else, then the lie gets bigger and bigger and bigger and harder for people to ignore. And that's that's much of what right-wing religion in America is. Repetition, repetition, and it's still false. Well, Laura Loomer is Jewish. She's a far-right, anti-Muslim, white nationalist, mm. yep. graduate of Mount Holyoke College, mm. and she ran against Lois Frankel, I believe, uh, she was. She ran for the uh, Florida's twenty-first congressional district, right? I don't know. And she I, was the Republican nominee in twenty twenty to run against Lois Frankel, and she ran again. Right. She lost the Republican primary this time, but she was the Republican nominee. That's right. In twenty twenty, for Florida's twenty-first <laughs> congressional district, here is Laura Loomer. Jewish, a Jewish, anti-Muslim, white nationalist. There aren't too many Jewish white nationalists. No. Uh, here's the brilliant Mount Holyoke graduate, Laura Loomer. You know how, like, the FBI sometimes grooms shooters so that they can get... Oh, all paid. the time, all the time they so do So you this. have school shootings, and then they say, gun control, gun control, gun control. Well, I truly believe, and I'll say this, and I said this on the campaign train as well, campaign trail as well. I strongly believe that the FBI works with the Democrat Party to carry out mass shooting false flags so that they can actually push for gun control. I think that the FBI recruits, pays, and trains mass shooters so that the mass shooters could then, uh, you know, do these terrible attacks and then it provides ammunition for the Democrats to call for gun control. Oh, and they do absolutely believe, do. I do believe that the FBI is intentionally, uh, you know, setting up American citizens to be murdered, uh, you know, by by people who who use guns, of course, as their weapon of choice so that they can help the Democrats push along their gun control effort. And I'm not afraid to say it either because I think it's just so obvious to everybody. Everybody. It's great that she's not afraid to say that. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a lot of courage it, to say that. And how about the courageousness of the interviewer mm -hmm. uh, who, who asks these incredibly tough questions and demands proof? Like, well, Laura, I mean, where give me a little bit of evidence about why you believe this. That's one of the techniques I used to use when I did a. a I used to, the, the local Fox affiliate in Washington. Uh, I was doing a talk show with a with a, a guy named uh, Pat Corton, and they used to have us on every Monday. And he would make these outlandish comments, not quite as loony as those. And then I'd go, "Well, give me an example." 
To whom did this happen? And it would be a stand. And then he'd, after the show, he'd go, well, you can't ask those questions. And I said, well, you brought it up. You damn well ought to have an answer. Who did it? Where did it happen? Wow. That, that, but yeah. I'm sure he would have gotten there if this clip had gone on another, I don't know, 18 minutes, maybe. I should mention uh, <laughs> we're getting word of two people dead, six others wounded in Las Vegas, where a man yeah. uh, went on a stabbing spree. And yeah. uh, obviously that was uh, set up by the FBI uh, to, to get us to... Yeah, I'm pretty sure. To ban knives. Knives, yeah. Yeah. Hey, should, let's go with misogyny, shall we? Let's try it. That's uh, it, you know, to go let's from... Let's try it. Yeah, I, I think this would be interesting. It, and th it's going to start getting ugly. And I'm being serious, so I want to warn you. Uh, okay. We're, we're going to get into misogyny and then some really bad racism that I'm almost ambivalent about playing, but I... I think you ignore these people at your own peril. Yeah. I, I think you need to know this is what they what they're what they're thinking. This is white nationalist Dalton Clodfelter. And I think his name <laughs> says pretty much everything about him. It's like like Louis Gohmert. You know like what to Lu, Lu, Louis Gohmert and, and the aforementioned Wiley Drake. Yeah. You're right. They, sh they should change their names, but they don't. Right. Play, play, Mister Clive it wasn't, it wasn't that a character in those fifties? Um, uh, how um, oh, hell? I don't Red know. Skelton. Didn't Red, Red Skelton? Red Skelton, of course. Red Skelton. I think Red Skelton had a character named uh, Dalton Clodfelder. Something like that. Or Clem Cladiddlehopper or something Clem like that. Clem All right, I got to warn you. I, okay. Uh, this is a little rough. Okay. Women are dumb voters. Women have a place in a society, and that place is in the home. That place is being subservient to their husbands. That place is looking to the husband as Jesus looks to God, or as the church looks to Jesus. This is how the true structure of the home is supposed to be developed. The facts of the matter are women are dumber than men. Women should be subservient to men. Women have no place in male activities. Women have no place of partaking in the workforce. Women have no place of partaking in politics. Women have no place outside of the home. The home is a virtuous place for women. Women should be happy when they are in the home. Women should be grateful when a man puts a roof over her head and supplies the family with food and resources and energy and structure. That is what women should be thankful for, ladies and gentlemen. And a lot of you are going to be very upset with this. A lot of people are going to say, how dare he talk about women that way? Oh, well, how, does he not have a daughter? Would he talk to his wife this way? Blah, 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 blah. You're losing your mind over the truth, over facts, over logic, over reason. You're losing your mind over the word of God. The Bible calls women to a particular place in the home. The, the Bible calls women to be subservient to their husbands. Men make stronger leaders. Men are just better. Men are awesome. I am a firm believer in the patriarchy. I'm a, I'm a misogynist. You could definitely claim that. You could say I'm a sexist, absolutely. Let me just state up front that mm. I disagree with most of what he just said. 
Uh, could you clarify what part of what you just heard you actually agree with? I think it's just kind of fun to be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. But, you know, think about this. <laughs> you know, I people people used to ask me, usually after some event, uh, when they were had a few drinks and they'd go, hey, Barry, why don't you just have a conversion and decide that everything you believe as a civil libertarian, as a church state separationist, as a feminist, that you you're going to have a change of heart. And then you can see if you can get back on all the TV shows you <laughs> used to be on and uh, say, yeah, I was I was so wrong. And I, but the, the women thing is is so bizarre and it's this guy of course just says what most right-wingers don't say but most of them do believe and that's why there are people uh, like i bet there's not one person listening to this who knows who janet partial is no janet partial was a christian talk show host uh we we kind of got friendly we used to do uh, an hour she was married to the guy that now is co-writing the left behind series and but she's incredibly smart and very facile with words and but she never got very far as a luminary of the religious right because she is a she and mm-hmm. she, I always thought, I think I, I said to her once, you know, you're the right wing secret weapon. Too bad they don't take you seriously. But they really, really do not. And with the exception of very, very few women evangelists, uh, they are pretty much shut out of any leadership role for the very reason that this guy was screaming about. If Christ is the head of the church, then who is the head of the family? And the answer is the husband. Right. And they believe that. That's Dalton. Oh, absolutely believe. No, they totally believe it. Because if you put this guy in a comedy club, (laughs) he'd sell out. I'm being serious. That guy, that is really (laughs) fun. Just to hear somebody say that almost convincingly, but apparently he's, uh, he means it. Why don't you invite him on the show? Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, yeah. I, because uh, you know what? He's the, I'm being serious. He's, he's the real deal. Yes, he is. He believes what he, that's what, uh, okay. Now it's going to get a little ugly. Okay. Uh, Nick mm. Fuentes. Uh, this guy is somewhat, influential among the far right wing he is uh he's had uh steve king and uh what's his name paul gosar speak at his rallies and michelle malkin is Mm -hmm. one of the advisors to his organization he also does a podcast uh this is what he's saying out loud. Now, we had Professor Juan Cole on last week talking about the theocrats in America who identify with the theocracy in Iran. They may not agree with the Shiites, but they certainly agree with the thought police. 
And that seems strange because I always think of the theocrats in America as being, you know, anti-Muslim. And he said, no, they might be anti-Muslim, but they sure love the, <laughs> the oppression, the religious oppression. Here is a crypto theocrat. Uh, what is his name again? Uh, he's a goiper. What, what's his name? What the, um, Fuentes, Nick Fuentes. Nick Fuentes, yeah. Crypto theocrat <laughs> Nick Fuentes. I got to warn you, this is not nice, as opposed to all the other stuff we've been playing for. <laughs> not even joking this much. I would prefer Taliban rule in America to this. You want to know why? Because at least if black people were fighting at the airport, they would get their hands cut off. And there would be no guys wearing high heels at flight attendants. Maybe they'd be women in burkas, but wouldn't that be preferable? Think about it. What would you prefer? Because I know I sound crazy when I say that. I know people no, say I sound like an insane no, person. No. But who's more insane? Like, what is really insane here? You. Is it insane that we would be under Taliban rule in America and the women would have burkas and and thieves would get their arms chopped off and blasphemers would get their tongues cut out? Or, or is it more ridiculous that you're going to board an airplane with a mask on, get groped, you have to bring a shampoo and a three-ounce bottle, and then you get on the flight and black people are going to be, what shade of me, bitch? Shade of me, bitch? Fuck you, bitch! And then, and then if that wasn't bad enough, a fucking gay man in high heels is going to zoom over in a mini skirt to break it up. Like if that's, that's too much for me. It's too much. I can't take, I can't take it anymore. I can't accept this anymore. I can't take this country. Bring it up. Bring on the Taliban. So here, here's my honest re reaction. Reverend. Okay. Uh, that's Nick Fuentes. Yeah. I could see myself losing my mind, somebody giving me a platform and saying to me, just talk this way and you'll have a following, you'll make some money. And my father coming to watch me work, I can hear him saying, okay, all right. But how far do you think you can go with this? <laughs> like you, you, I see where you're going, but you're gonna. <laughs> there's a limit to how far you can take this. I mean that. I can hear my father saying that. Where sure. does he think he's going with this? Yeah. Where is what is what are his? How big does he think he can get? Here's what's happening, though. These people. It, what you know, I I don't know Norman Lear terribly well, but I I know him a little. And the one thing that bothered me when they started Right Wing Watch was that they were taking uh, these people who were genuinely on the kind of lunatic fringe of the right and acting as if they were the same as when Pat Robertson or Jerry Fulwell said something stupid. But I've, I've changed my mind because I think what you're hearing with these clips is exactly the under the kind of undergirding of what so many Republican politicians are saying today. Mm -hmm. So that this is no longer on the fringe. This is stuff that is being adopted by elected 
members of the House and Senate. And that is what's truly frightening about all of this. The, they are moving the goalposts away from beyond the goal line right up to about the 20 yard line and people are going eh, that that could be true yeah maybe we should do that that it it is just frightening and people really need to listen to this uh, the good dr lynn was uh we were talking one day at lunch and she said she was going someplace she had to drive for eight hours i said well, what are you going to do and i and she said, what should I do? And I said, listen to talk radio. I said, why would I do that? I said, because you will not believe what you will hear over eight hours. And she did that. She came back and she said, you know, everything you said is true. They repeat the same ridiculous claims. They repeat them show after show after show. And it's now infected everything. Talk radio is not nearly as powerful as it used to be, but these clowns are now getting on their own TV shows. They're running internet shows. And you've just heard, you know, four or five uh, examples in the last 30 minutes of just how crazy these people have become and how dangerous they are because so many people do believe it. And there's very, very little criticism of it. I was only half joking when I asked why you don't have one of these guys on your show, because I think I, I think you'd have a very good time chatting with them and asking them the questions they never get asked on any other program. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I would just feel dirty and scared by them. It, it, um, I find them really, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, this, let's, let's end with this guy. His name is Jared Taylor. Oh, uh, yes. I don't know yeah. who he is, but he sounds like a lot of people in a bar after <laughs> a couple of drinks. <laughs> Uh, you tell me who he is after we play this frightful clip. Yeah. What's the thinking behind this? That race is a social construct? <laughs> Hardly. It's elimination of white people, even from our own history and our own fairy tales. While blacks glory in a heroic, all-black fantasy past and an all-black high-tech fantasy future. If that's supposed to boost their self-esteem and make them stop shooting each other and us, it's not working. Or is it supposed to demoralize whites, make us think we were bit players in history and have a meager future? Judging from television ads in which all the couples are now mixed race, it looks like we're supposed to miscegenate ourselves into extinction and have no future at all. Black people are posting videos of their children bursting with happiness when they see the trailer for The Little Mermaid. She's black like me. What about the little white girls who say, Daddy, that's not Ariel. Who cares about them? They can't have their own stories. This is all part of the sick and sickening adoration for blacks and loathing for whites we see everywhere. Wow. Until this week, I have ne never heard of Jared Taylor. But 
But this fascination with popular culture and its demoralizing effect on the country is nothing new. This guy is just a little bit more blatant in his racism. But for for decades, there has been a criticism of various pieces of popular culture because they are allegedly trying to diminish the role of whites or diminish the role of men or diminish the the strength of somebody. And it's so that's there's nothing new about that. And in fact, just before I um, I I had my tomato soup tonight, um, I was watching a person on Facebook who was complaining about Disney Plus, this streaming service, having a new movie called Hocus Pocus 2, which is about three witches. And this woman said, she starts out talking and she says, uh, I, I just heard the seven words no mother wants to hear. There's a witch in my house. Hmm. That's what her daughter said when she's flipping through the channels, happened to find a clip for Hocus Pocus 2. So if you think that this apparent distaste for anybody different is uh, just something that doesn't affect normal people, uh, it does. It does, and they are just... It, it, it is bewildering, much as I've heard these people over and over again for decades and decades. Still, something like the Hocus Pocus 2. I saw two people complaining about it today on the Internet. And um, it, 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 it is they, – they see in Disney, Disney movies um, – I may have mentioned The Lion King once – uh the the American Life League actually when the cartoon version of Lion King came out uh, they they said that the the king lion is looking out over the plains and in the clouds there is a uh, a shape of a penis I have a yep. feeling they find the shape of a penis uh, in a lot of places. Uh, I think they do. I think they do, and they shouldn't. Because they should, uh, if they want to see that, they should just rent a porn movie. Yeah, let, before you go, let me show yep. you something. This is from uh, the University of Chicago, a poll done a month ago of about a couple thousand people. And they were asked about, uh, let me just do this. Let me see if it will work. There we go. This is comparing how Democrats and Republicans view the world. For example, the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump and Joe Biden as an illegitimate president. 27% of Republicans agree with that. Uh, I'm sorry, 19 percent of Republicans agree with that. 27 percent strongly agree with that. So we're getting uh, some insight uh, into the mind of a Republican. 
a secret group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles is ruling the U.S. government. Uh, 7% of Republicans strongly agree. 7% of Republicans <laughs> agree. I thought it would be higher. 28% neither agree nor disagree. We're talking about Republicans. All yes. right. Now it gets interesting. This is the stubborn stain of the Southern strategy that your friend Pat Buchanan came up with. Oh, yeah. This is, this is the Republican Party. Here's the question. Irish, Italians, Jewish, and many other minorities overcame prejudice and worked their way up. Blacks should do the same without any special favors. 25% of Republicans strongly agree with that. 32% agree with that. And then 32% neither agree or disagree. And only 6% disagree. Wow. You know, race is really important. Racism is still, it, th there it is. There's your Republican Party. Yep. Here's the next question. And this, this is something I never even thought about until I read the, read the poll. African-American people or Hispanic people in our country will eventually have more rights than whites. 11% of Republicans strongly agree. 23% of Republicans agree. 35% neither agree nor disagree. Uh, it, that, like, I've never thought, never occurred to me that Hispanics or black people were going to have more rights than white people. Like, I never... That seems, after all the controversies to stir up divisions in this country, I think what still divides Democrats from Republicans is Republicans are racist. Yep. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. I do agree with that. And I, I did not see this survey, but I do... Um, but it doesn't surprise me. It sickens me, but it doesn't surprise me. Race is the great dividing line. It's a, it's a, um, I remember I was once, um, but then um, we're kind of over time here, but I, for a brief time, Pat Robertson had a talk show on he didn't host it. Someone else hosted it. Right, It followed the 700 Club, his kind of flagship uh, production every day. And I was on with an African-American guy from Little Rock, Arkansas. And he he had just been arrested for burning an American flag. But he came on the show and it was... It was astonishing. The same studio audience that was there for the 700 Club was there for whatever this thing was called after the fact. And um, 
when when he said, I burned this because I wanted to make clear that African-Americans in Arkansas are not treated well. They are not treated right. And then he had a restaurant and he would never turn anyone away who was hungry but had no money. He would just serve dozens and dozens of meals every day to people who simply had no money. But the reaction when he burned that flag and when that part of the interview came up from that audience, you would think that he had just announced that he was going to spray paint the entire audience with um, blackface. It was horrible. I mean, absolutely horrible. Yeah. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, for nearly a quarter of a century, ran Americans United for separation of church and state. He is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, as well as a member of the Supreme Court Bar. He is a lawyer, and uh, thank you so much. This is fun to look at these clips. Scary, but fun. It's like a horror. Yeah. It's like a horror movie. Um, yes, it is. But it's real, and most horror movies aren't. Yeah. Vote. Vote. Vote for the Democratic Party. As bad as they are. Yep. They're exactly. not. They're not as bad as this crap that you're seeing. No, that's true. That's yeah. true. Thank you, Reverend. Uh, absolutely. I will uh, see you. Uh, I, I hope I'm healthier next week. Well, you, you, you sound pretty good for a guy on, you know. On antivirals, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah, I think maybe, um, I think I'm probably doing better just being, being here. I, I think I feel a kind of healing presence that comes let from. Me, let me put my hands you know, on the, yeah, the camera. Please. Heal. Oh, okay. Thank you. That wasn't my hand. Uh, no, I thank think, you. I didn't think so. Thank, thank stay you. out of trouble. I, only good trouble. Thank you, sir. Bye bye. That was great. I. You're I, listening to the David Feldman Show. DavidFeldmanShow.com. Office hours every Friday night. I always say this. Office hours Friday night at 8 p.m. Come to office hours. You'll meet better people. So one of the people who runs Office Hours is Joe in Norway, and he's back in Norway. What are you going to be preparing for us tonight? Tonight I'll be preparing a Chinese dish called the Eggplant Dragon. I'll be trying to slay the Eggplant Dragon. Ah. And you're going to... A very special dish with a, a nice presentation. That's a beautiful table, by the way. Please tell oh, me you didn't a, make that. No. It's, uh, it's about a 70-year-old <laughs> table. Really? It's about 70 years old. What I'm going to do, we've got some, we don't have some showers, we've got some growers. I'm going to accordionize the eggplants first. Ah, do you have a monkey? To, Is a monkey going <laughs> to dance? While special trick. I'll make a, a nice spicy sauce along with it. Wow. So I'll take my time. My my schedule after all of these uh, um, these countries has uh, thrown off my schedule. So, How long were you traveling for? Two months. 
You were in Spain, France, Italy, Switzerland, Belgium, and and then Belgium, and did, now did, back in Norway. Were you in Italy? No. Oh, okay. Right. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on you, and we'll come back in about an hour to watch you uh, eat it. The professors in Marianne uh, is a little short tonight, but that's okay. We don't have professor. We don't have Marianne Cummings. We don't have Ann Lee. I don't think we have uh, Professor Adnan Hussein. We do have Professor Jonathan Bick, and we have Doctor Nancy, who is a pediatric, shall we say, neurologist. Sure. Okay. And that'd be right. <laughs> okay. And Professor Jonathan Bick uh, joins us from Massachusetts. Hello. Hello there. And uh, I think it's going to be us, but I'm going to ask Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling uh, to chime in if, if he so wishes. He's a royal watcher. Uh, he may be asleep. I believe it's four in the morning in London. Let's start oh, with... sadly, I'm awake. Oh, you are awake? Oh, yes. Okay. Neighbors my... are playing up a bit. The, the, the what? The neighbors are playing up somewhat. Oh. He lives next door to Sandringham in East Anglia, one of King Charles's mansions. Castles, I think you call them. Stately film. Uh, Dr. Nancy, you're a pediatric neurologist, you were on the show Monday saying that parents are too cuddly with their children, and I'm kind of uh, doing a disservice, but we focus too much on our children, we, we hover over them, finish their sentences, cuddle them, coddle them, we should leave them alone. And that that uh, that resonated with me because I can remember saying uh, I, w I was saying to Dr. Hershenfeld earlier I I wanted my family to just stay in the house and never leave, lock the doors, and. Uh, but they're supposed to leave, leave us alone, and we're supposed to leave them alone, right? Yeah. Um, some of what you said was, I think, right on. Some was overstated. Some was understated. <laughs> of, of what? In some, in su my summation of what you said. Yes, yes. But yes, from where I stand, I see an awful lot of that, and. Uh, my goal isn't to make parents feel guilty. I think that young parents have a hard time with all the advice that's being given to them from all ends. And, um, you know, analogy, there's once a, once a study of how doctors counsel patients on their diet. You'd never guess what the result was. The result was a very high correlation to doctors counseling parents according to what their mother fed them. 
<laughs> what the doctors were fed. Yes, by their own mothers. And I think this is analogous to this situation that I even saw a um, an article written by a physician very, very strongly saying, how dare we call children to be addicted to their computers and their video games? Because, of course, what followed was how many hours he lets his own kids watch screens. So it's it's a very personal issue. I understand that. But um, as a physician who's supposed to be a neurologist, and even though neurology and psychiatry, from the very beginning, the founders knew that they overlap. It's hard to do neurology without psychiatry and vice versa. Um, so our board exams are both. We're actually qualified to be the other. Um, but um, Define neurology, please. Neurology is about how the brain controls the body and the nerves that go from the brain to the body. And psychiatry used to be... You got that right, man. You're putting some money in the... Just wanted to see if you got that right. Okay. What's that? Well, I'm just... I keep score on my guests. They have to answer certain questions and... You you get a uh, let's put some money in the kitty. Right. So you're winning one to nothing. Go go ahead. So okay. So and psychiatry used to be based on something called um, the concept of mind, and it always made me nuts when I was going through medical school. What is the um, or theory of mind? What's the theory of mind? Basically, that you can think yourself into illness and vice versa, um, which I think has been debunked by now. But um, it, psychiatry is definitely going into the the chemicals that are keeping the um, that make the brain work. Right. So, but the, I so tell, uh, in terms of raising, let me uh, I, let me bring in Professor Jonathan Bick here. Uh, you have any questions about uh, raising children? Because you do have a, a cat. Uh, I don't approve of the way you're raising Bella. Who, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think you're able to say no to Bella. Um, that could be. I think that that may be a fault that I have. But I don't um, mean to be cruel here. But I do pass judgment, Dr. Nancy, on the way people raise their pets. And... <laughs> Uh, I, uh, people who have cats like Bella, who is unpleasantly plump, is that putting it? <laughs> and Professor Bick, brilliant man, right, says to me, what am I supposed to do? She, my cat likes to eat. And I, and, and I think... In, in fairness, David, I don't feed her, but um, yeah. And, and you are forgetting that she's big boned. She is big boned. <laughs> but and Dr. very fluffy. Dr. Nancy, does the cat have a problem or does Professor Bick have a problem? He can't say no to his cat, right? 
as long as the cat is giving back more than it's, or at least as much as it's costing him in time and energy and emotions, um, I think it's a fine balance. But when you, when people say to me, I, I can't control my dog's appetite, <laughs> what does that say? You should, you you can. You're the one feeding the dog yes. and the cat. Well, in my defense, David, I, I do underfeed my children. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That, that makes... Uh... Uh, actually, my, my question was for Dr. Nancy uh, regarding affection. So... Um, I, I was always under the impression that um, the real danger is a lack of, you know, uh, physical affection uh, of parents toward their children rather than a, uh, a, a uh, surplus of it. I think to some extent you're right. But there are all sorts of different populations in this country. And there are children who I think are terribly neglected. But I think it's very interesting that you can have doting parents in, in a situation in which I would say the child is still neglected. I can give you a few examples. Me. What? <laughs> me. That's First of all, to defend myself, let me give you a couple of real life examples. I'm a medical doctor and I'm there for their headaches or their movement or their whatever. And it is not too terribly rare that I have a mother who has to hug and kiss her kid every 90 seconds throughout the doctor visit when I'm trying to have a conversation and it makes me nuts. It's hard to have a conversation when we have to follow the child around and there, the kids are, I, I don't want to say they're bad kids, but they're incapable of sitting and entertaining themselves for a few minutes. while mommy or daddy talks to the doctor. They're just incapable of doing that because they are addicted to the constant attention. And that, con and that hovering and that constant attention and the kissing, they're not doing it for the kid. They're doing it for themselves. Bingo. Bingo. And the kid gets so used to it. What happens when you have a bunch of kids go to preschool or kindergarten and they're used to their whole world hugging and kissing them for every pee, poop and burp right. and telling them how great they are and they never pick themselves up from hurting themselves. Um, and I think a hug becomes less meaningful. Kisses become less meaningful and they don't believe that they ever have to return it because it always comes to them. That's how they've been trained. Are you better? So somebody like Alec Baldwin, I think he and 
Hilaria just had their 900th child. I would assume because you can't hug all 900 Baldwin, Baldwinos, what are, what are they called? Uh, that those kids are probably going to be better adjusted, right? Well, in some ways, but, you know, there are problems at the other end, too. And I see someone mention kids at community colleges. I think that's true. I think the leaders of tomorrow are not coming in the coming uh, are going to come of age and um, from the privileged schools. (coughs) Excuse me. I see kids going through privileged schools that extend what these very um, thank you endowed um, parents have offered them, thinking they're doing the best thing. But they get into school and they need remedial classes. I think the leaders of tomorrow are are coming from the um, the kids who have had to pick themselves up, the kids who have paid part of their way through college or um, whatever. You know, another way, you know, there's a, a few things that I can convince most people. By saying, I mean, when I was a kid growing up, I had a big extended family, ethnic family around Detroit. We had a kid's table. We didn't want to sit with adults. And I don't ever see kids sitting on their own anymore. I'll never forget walking into a nice restaurant and three siblings fighting over sitting in mom's lap in a nice restaurant. Um, And... And it makes kids not like their siblings. I see kids fighting with each other for mother's attention, and they're not playing with each other so much. Sir, Arthur, no. Sir Arthur Grieb Striebling, you were brought up in East Anglia. You're 74 years old. Yes, I was sitting here wondering, and might I suggest... Uh, one or two uh, character-building exercises for your the discerning child. Yes. We can see them through the rest of their lives. Yes. Uh, one, uh, uh, you may not be uh, able to find an accessible tree in a city, but I, I suppose a lamppost may do, but anything, anything high, anything high. Uh, and if you have a sharp implement such as a uh, a rod with a knife on the end or a pitchfork, anything. Well, if you intimidate your child enough to ascend, say, the tree or lamppost uh, to its highest height and leave them there, then get some standard uh, petrol or, or, or barbecue light fluid, anything like that. <laughs> yes. Just alight the base of the uh, tree, or uh, you may you may get punished by municipal people for dealing with the lamppost. But if you set fire to that thing, that will develop a great deal of character in that child. So you're talking about, I, I guess, Dr. Nancy, he's talking about tough love. Yes. Tough love. Another another exercise would be to find your nearest beck or stream or canal, and by a nice sturdy rubber dinghy, and just uh, force the child into the dinghy and 
The way of the Can't Spartan, do. I believe, is what you're saying. Cast it away. Yeah. The way of the Spartan. Or you uh, also take a child camping on a lovely camping trip in the, the classics uh, or wherever and uh, get out all the equipment, give them a compass and a nice jam sandwich and then get in the car and drive away. And then <laughs> the number, many methods can be applied to build not only character but resolve and gain an independence they will carry through the rest of their life. I, I should point out that Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling, Dr. Nancy, is not a, a PhD. He's, he's not a doctor. He's just part of the British aristocracy. Yes, no, I don't go for academia. No. And he sounds so smart, you believe anything he says. Yes, he yes, yes. He, yes. That, That's uh, one of the tricks of the aristocracy, you see. Yes. Professor... We have an error... We have an air of authority, which means we believed no matter what the fuck we're jibbering on about. <laughs> and he's down to one tooth at 75. Yes. One tooth. Yes. Right in the front, like a beaver. Yep. Uh, Professor Jonathan Bick? Yeah, I, I, I must say the, the usual way the aristocracy treat their children is to send them away to boarding school at the age of five. With the problems of buggery. Yeah. I, yes. I think it's uh, fairly similar to well, sending them off in a rowboat or... Um, in all seriousness. The the road. In all seriousness. Sending your child... Dr. Nancy, Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling was sent... How old were you when you were sent off? To, was it Gordonston? I was seven years old. And was Gor Gordonston where Prince Philip went? He was stoned, yes. And I... Oh yes, Gordon's on the spot. Yes, correct. And uh, it was yes. br it was brutal. It was like Lord of the Flies, correct? Uh, it depends how um, much of a subordinate one is. If, <laughs> once once you give in, once you give in to the regime, it's quite a breeze, actually. Okay. In all seriousness, yeah. Doctor Nancy, the the idea of sending your kid to boarding school, even at ten or twelve. That can't be healthy. That's what you do if, like, there's been a death in the family and the mother can't raise the kid. Is, is there anything good that comes out of boarding school? You learn how to get along with other kids. But it's you might as well be raised in a 90s-era Romanian orphanage post-Ceausescu. How can that be healthy? No, the Romanian orphan. I'm half Romanian, so I take a little offense at that. Oh, good. Um, no, you know what I'm talking about with the Romanian orphan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But the the thing is that they were left in cribs and totally unstimulated. I mean, it's like putting them in a box. Right. And um, was that done after the fall of the Soviet Union or was that Ceausescu's? I think it was Ceausescu. It was. Yeah, he idea. had a strict portion, uh, position of no abortions. So they would have uh, a, a lot of these orphanages that were just filled with unwanted children. Um, 
it was it was horrifying. Yeah, and they were neglected, and yeah, yeah the real horror. We we, uh, we my kids were friendly with one. He was adorable kid, and very like he had to hug everybody. And, and I'd say, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa! I wasn't in a or okay. So, <laughs> sorry, I'm just. <laughs> Dr. Nancy's never coming back. If I keep, uh, in all in all seriousness, the, the the idea of sending a kid off to boarding school, you know, I understand why Prince Philip was sent to that boarding school. He he didn't have parents, but if you have parents and the, what, who would send their kids off to a boarding school? The right parents. By <laughs> By right, I mean far right. <laughs> I I think it can be good and bad. And um, I got to say something. There was a comment. Uh, there's a lot of bullying in uh, boarding schools. I'm sure that's true. But I will tell you, I would like someone to do a study of nine-year-old girls in America. We weren't like that when I was nine. But virtually every nine-year-old girl I come across now is either being bullied or is, has attitude like they're a bully. And there is something very fierce about this population. And I don't think you have to, uh, yeah, maybe it's the mean girl movies. I don't know, but there's something going, you can get bullied anywhere. It's popular to complain about bullying these, these right. days. By the way, is my microphone Okay. No, you have static on your microphone. I do have static. Yes, every time you speak. You, uh, Professor John, you talk, and I'll bitch and moan about my microphone. Okay. Um, well, I, I actually uh, prepared a, a story here. Um Let's see. And perhaps uh, Dr. Nancy could uh, provide her a take on part of this as well. Um, as people probably know, uh, President Biden pardoned all people convicted of marijuana possession under federal law and said his administration would review whether... Um, Marijuana should still be a Schedule One drug like heroin and LSD, saying it makes no sense. The pardons that he announced will clear about 6,500 people who were convicted on federal charges of simple possession of marijuana from 1992 to 2021, and thousands more who were convicted of possession of marijuana in the District of Columbia. Uh, and he urged governors to follow the, his lead um, because his pardons only affect people that were convicted under federal law. The president has no ability to pardon anyone who was convicted under state or local laws. So it's a it's a relatively small number of people compared with the number of people who are in jail because of some sort of drug related conviction. Um, 
According to the ACLU, marijuana arrests now account for over half of all drug arrests in the United States. Of the 8.2 million marijuana arrests between 2001 and 2010, 88% were simply for having marijuana. So that's over 7 million people who arrested simply for possessing marijuana. U.S. states waste $3.6 trillion every year prosecuting and policing marijuana possession, which is, wow, I, I saw that number. That was according to analysis by the ACLU. Um, and President Biden did not call for the complete decriminalization of marijuana, something that Congress would have to do, um, because he says that the, there still need to be important limitations on trafficking, marketing, and underage sales of marijuana. Um, my position on that would be, well, you can do all of those things by regulating it and legalizing it. All of those issues could be addressed by that. Uh, advocacy groups praised President uh, Biden's announcement, but said the impact on real-life individuals will be limited if states do not follow suit. Um, only 92 people were sentenced on federal marijuana possession charges in 2017. Out of nearly 20,000 drug convictions, federal drug convictions, according to the U.S. Sentencing Commission. So most of the uh, federal charges are for things like tr selling marijuana, uh, possessing it with the intent to distribute, which is often simply having a few ounces of marijuana. Um, and... Marijuana is already fully legal in about 20 states, and some other states have relaxed criminal penalties. Uh, but it remains illegal in, in a handful of states, fully illegal. Now, a lot of people don't know what a presidential pardon, what the implications of that are. Uh, people think that means that the conviction is wiped away. That is not the case. The president's pardon power, first of all, it's limited to federal offenses. As I said, it has to be for a conviction on, uh, of a violation of federal law. And a pardon is an expression of the president's forgiveness and is ordinarily granted in recognition of the applicant's acceptance of responsibility for the crime and established good con conduct for a significant period of time after the conviction or completion of sentence. It does not signify innocence. Its practical effect is the restoration of civil rights and statutory disabilities. For example, uh, the right to own a firearm, to get an occupational license, um, to vote in some states. And so the, so a 
pardon restores various rights that may have been lost due to a conviction, but it does not erase or expunge the record of the conviction itself. And this is important because currently there is no way to expunge or erase a conviction of a federal crime. Congress would have to pass such a statute. And um, in fact, uh, I would say that most convictions should be expunged after a certain number of years if no other violations of law have been committed. I'm not sure what the point is of having these convictions on people's records that affect them for the rest of their lives because of something they may have done as a, uh, a youth, for example, or a one-time thing. Uh, the ability to expunge convictions does exist at the state level for state crimes, but it varies from state to state uh, considerably on which types of crimes uh, are eligible for expungement, and uh, after, you know how long after serving your sentence or after the conviction uh, can it be considered, et cetera, et cetera. Therefore, a person who is granted a pardon must still disclose their convictions on any form where such information is required, although the person may disclose the fact that they received a pardon. Also, as most civil disabilities arising from a criminal conviction, such as the loss of the right to vote and hold state public office, are imposed by state rather than federal law, they may be removed only by state action. So uh, if, if you were prohibited from voting because of a federal conviction of possessing marijuana, it's totally up to the state to decide whether or not you can vote in state elections. My recommendation would be to legalize mar uh, marijuana entirely. Um, if you can't do that, then stop arresting people at all levels of government for the use, possession, sale, or production of marijuana. Uh, prohibit advertising or marketing of marijuana. Again, I think it should be regulated. Um, and all drugs. I don't think drugs should be advertised. Most countries, it's illegal to advertise drugs. I think there are two exceptions, uh, the United States being one of them. And uh, the other thing you could do is reschedule marijuana from a Schedule One drug to a Schedule Five drug, which is the lowest uh, schedule that the DEA has. Uh, to give you an example, Schedule Four drugs are things such as Xanax, Darvacet, Valium, and Ativan. I think all of those are more likely to be abused than marijuana. And marijuana uh, does have uh, a medical use. Right now, it's scheduled as a Schedule One drug, which means, which is by definition means the drug or uh, has no... Uh, currently accepted medical treatment use in the U.S. It means that the drug has a high potential for abuse and that it is a, uh, has a lack of accepted safety for use under medical supervision. I don't think any of those apply to marijuana. Um, 
So I'm wondering, uh, uh, Dr. Nessa, what are your thoughts on, on this? Um, I think we waste way too much time dealing with marijuana. And that um, are there risks? There's more risks of marijuana than most of the users appreciate. It um, There's definitely medical um, injuries from a lot of use of marijuana, but there is of alcohol also. And um, I think there are more important things in this world, and I, I do think it should be legal and and everyone who's been convicted on it be expunged. It's, I think it's such a waste of energy. Can, by the way, can you hear me? And has the buzzing disappeared? No, the no, buzzing's it's there. still there. How bad is the buzzing? We are talking about marijuana, so a buzz isn't the worst thing. <laughs> but is it is it terrible? No, you. We can get by. At what age is it appropriate? For kids to, if they have to smoke marijuana, what what for you is the cutoff? Where does it become just? I love you ask that question because I want to say something I wanted to say a little earlier. It really depends on the level of development. And may I backtrack a little bit? I think kids are supposed to roll over and crawl. They're supposed to learn to play with each other at two or three, they're not supposed to be learning the alphabet. It's not, the alphabet doesn't mean anything. You know, there's different ages that you're supposed to do something. And why is that? Your brain's making different connections at different time. And um, we now know, um, oh, it was a couple months ago, I read this. And don't ask me the details of the study, but they followed some people for decades if you start using marijuana as a teenager and you use it regularly, your IQ is an average of 17 points lower as you grow up. And, you know, I knew a lot of people who smoked a lot of marijuana in college because that was the thing where I was and uh, brilliant people. And I was very just they couldn't believe I became a doctor because I was not one of the smartest of my crowd. And, uh, it, it, but you know what? Marijuana is a great anti-anxiety. It's, it gets much more published, um, more highly acclaimed for pain control. I'm not so sure of that, but I know that it is a really good anti-anxiety. And I can almost predict the kids going off to college, whether they're going to want more Ritalin or just try Ritalin or cocaine, or they're going to like marijuana. It's the anxious kids who really like marijuana when they try it. And it's a different type of marijuana now. It's stronger than when we were that age. That's true. Stronger or better? More efficient? I don't know. I, I don't smoke it. So I, I'm just curious. Well, you see, if it's legal, then you you can require that the dosage be listed, right? You can actually know how much you're taking and how strong the drug is. If it's illegal and people get it that way, they have no idea. Could be strong, could be weak. They don't know. Uh, 
So trying to dose yourself is nearly impossible when drugs are illegal. Um, I, I would agree that, you know, we, we should discourage children from taking any sort of drug, uh, whether it's alcohol or uh, marijuana. Um, so, I mean, I would be perfectly all right with it being 21. You know, you have to be the age of 21 in order to start using it, just like alcohol. Um, I, I think it's absurd that we can hold people responsible if we if we say that you know children's brains are developing and uh they shouldn't use marijuana because it will affect their brain but yet we can hold them legally accountable for using or possessing marijuana at, at an age where their brain is still developing i think there's a little contradiction there you know right you, you can't Agreed. convict people of adults if they're not adults uh, of adult crimes. So, you know, we, that's another area. Do we, we know, know how many people are doing uh, years in prison, in, in state prisons for marijuana possession? Well, I... I <laughs> There are people that are arrested and do serve time for simple possession, particu- particularly at the state level. Um, that, that's why, you know, this action by the president is less impactful than uh, I, I was hoping, anyway, uh, because most of the crimes where they're serving long amounts of time, it's related to sale or distribution of marijuana, not simply possession. And that's all that he's pardoning. And that's all that he's encouraging the governors to, uh, to follow up with simple possession. Um, there were over 7 million arrests for simple possession of marijuana between 2001 and 2010 in the United States. Okay, let me try, keep talking. Let me try one more thing on the mic front. Might I come out of character for a second? Of course. Um, what, what, does the, what, what is the police's take in the U.S. regarding weed? About half the profits. Can you hear me? <laughs> <laughs> Did I fix it? No. No? no. God. No. The reason I ask is because here in the UK, it's the police that are leading the charge in trying to get it legalized, and the government are stuck in the mud on it. So, um, our local commissioner, uh, police commissioner, was part of a group called Leaf, which was a group of heads of police forces various counties around the country that got together and said they need to definitely decriminalize, like legalize cannabis, but then work towards to decriminalize everything, everything, everything else because they spend so much of their resource on what they see as wasting time and arresting people for nothing really. But if, I think it may have been 2000 or 1999 under Blair 
he tried to decriminalize it, which wasn't, it sounds pretty much like what Biden's doing. So it's not like, it's not fully legalizing it, but making it, he made it accessible to the point where you wouldn't get arrested for smoking it in public type thing. Um, but it was the churches who ended that. He, he got a lot of pressure from the churches and rolled back on it very quickly. I'd say within about six months. So you had all these stoners like, way <laughs> the victory. And then like six months later, it's like, oh, um, an upper and a downer, if you will. So I'm just, I'm just curious as to what law enforcement's take is in the States on it, because I'm sh- sure to God, they must think it's a waste of resource as well. Well, it's, I, th- I would say it's varied. You know, it depends on the police uh, officer. Uh, you know, it does make it very easy to pull people over and to search their vehicle because all the police officer has to say is, oh, I smell marijuana mm-hmm. when they open their window. Uh, so it gives them an excuse to violate yeah. people's rights and search their car. Uh, it's an in, isn't it? For yes. Them. And and the same with uh, with houses, quite frankly. If you open the door, police officer, and he says, oh, I smell marijuana, he could enter uh, because he's got a reasonable suspicion uh, that a crime is being committed. So, you know, I, I don't... I don't I don't think that's a good thing. Um, well, there's a running joke in Britain this winter because uh, you, the, the joke is you can spot uh, someone who's grown weed a mile off because uh, the only street in the house where the, the snow's melted on the roof. Uh, <laughs> well, that, what, what the, that what raises... Doing this year, because of the energy crisis, they're saying that's the only person who can afford to pay the bills. Yeah. I, I right. I, yeah. there, was, there was a case that went to the Supreme Court uh, where the police were going through neighborhoods with an infrared camera mm-hmm. and scanning every house. I think they ruled that was unconstitutional, right? Yeah, I believe they did. Yeah. Is my sound but, better? No. It's everybody's as well, by the way, I think. And John's talking, sorry. Oh, really? My, uh, yeah. Oh. Really? I wasn't doing that before. David, I think you meant it worse. <laughs> Is it? The virus on to let, let me ask the people. We should wrap it up here. Uh, and I don't know whether or not we should continue because of the sound problems. Let me ask the YouTube room. Is what does it sound like? How bad is it? Same for everybody or just me? Can I? Okay. Uh, is this well, in the Zoom room? What what are, what are we saying? Hmm. It's it's when you talk. Well, it's always better when I don't talk. I, I did want to mention a lovely vintage phone from the fifties. One benefit, there, there's an article in the New York Times that mentions the benefit of marijuana. Uh, it says the data, the data is scarce. Uh, I think it should be the data are scarce. Uh, but anecdotal evidence suggests that the right dose of cannabis 
can make a woman's orgasms more satisfying and increase sex drive. Bingo. Okay. All right. Uh, Dr. Nancy, this was great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Professor Jonathan Bick. Uh, How do people get in touch with you, Dr. Nancy? How do people get in touch with me? Oh, I guess I'll put my email in. I can do that. Okay. So, and we will see Professor Jonathan Bick for Office Hours and Hours, where he'll be teaching The Twilight Zone as well as Star Trek. We should mention that on Saturday at 9.30, Professor Adnan Hussein teaches class number two of the Crusades. And go to adnanhussein.org to register. It's very generous of him. It's free, and it's a great, amazing class. I will be there. And hopefully, Professor Adnan Hussein and Professor Ann Lee and Professor Marianne Cummings will be back next week. Thank you, Dr. Nancy. Thank you. Thank you. Well, th- Prof- Professor John, yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Professor John. Let's go to Joe in Norway, and then we will talk to Professor Harvey J.K. and Alan. I- I'm getting a lot of static. Are you getting the static? From me or from everybody? I'm getting static too, Harvey. I'm getting static. I think we may have to call the show. Because I can't solve it. Let's check in with Joe in Norway. And I think we're going to... I think it's what he's cooking. Yes. I think we need to call the show. We're we're almost finished. We got two minutes here. Uh, I think the audio podcast is not going to get the static. So why don't we do this? Is it still bad, Professor K? Yeah. (sighs) Coming through for me, too. I've tried everything. I apologize. Uh, And I've, I've been reading the British Marxist historians and I... With Alan here, I thought we could have a great conversation, but this is well. We know we know we'll see each other next week too. I but let's do it next week. Can I'm you sorry. can you try muting, uh, Joe? I don't think he's the cause. No, I, I was kidding when I said that. Actually, yeah, I don't think so. Well, those bubbles have to be making. My, oh, there it goes. Yeah, but it's coming okay. from when didn't work. Speaks. It's coming from when David speaks. But is it cut when other people speak? Is it okay? No, it's fine for everyone else. Oh, well, then wait well, a second. Why doesn't Alan talk to Professor K? And I'll. <laughs> First of all, Alan, has Alan confessed to you that he has COVID? I, I have to confess, I have a, I'm COVID positive, folks. I'm bravely here on my deathbed, except I'm not on my deathbed. Right now, I don't feel that bad, but my voice does go pretty quickly. I got COVID as of two days ago. We can, we can do this next week. My book my book will be as alive then as now. Okay. I was <laughs> I wanted to talk about the transition to capitalism. Yeah, next week, I'm going to talk about well, We can talk about capitalism next week. Alan, to capitalism or from capitalism? To capitalism. That's chapter right. two of the British Marxist historians. Right. And then we can talk about right. from capitalism, too. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes, let's do that as well. All right. Thank okay. you. Thank you, Dr. Nancy, Professor Harvey J.K., Alan Minsky. Alan, feel better. As soon as you feel up to it, we'll talk again, okay? What, what do you think yeah. is worse? My, uh, the fact that my sound is off or his COVID? I'm, I'm, I guess his COVID. <laughs> I'm, I'm more empathetic I'm, or sympathetic to, for him feeling sorry for you. How's that? Thank you. Yeah. It sounds like it's probably some, you might need a new mic connection. Probably not a new mic. It's either a new mic or a new mic connection. No, it's, I, I have a new mixer and I just think if I turned it off and restarted it, but let's call it a night. Joe okay. in Norway. In which case, get an early, an early to bed. How's that? Yes. I'll get Thank an you. early to bed. There we Thank go. Thank you. Both of you. Two people Thank tonight you, have COVID. Two people. You, wow. you and uh, the Reverend. Describe your food and then we'll wrap it up. Well, the eggplant dragon came out all right. So Amazing. this is a deep fried eggplant that I cut in an accordion style. So it's, uh, when it comes to the table, it's quite... Quite uh, cool. The way after it cooks, it kind of spreads out like uh, playing cards. And it's a, a spicy Sichuanese uh, fish-scented sauce, even though there's no fish in it. Just the, the flavor combination that it stirs up. Mm. Eggplant dragon. Beautiful. Delicious. Well, we can see it at least it's it smells i'm gonna call it the crackling is driving everybody crazy uh thank you'll find that's with pork david i'm sorry you're gonna get crackling with the pork yeah <laughs> florida man we're, we're, yes sir we, we have I can cover what i'm gonna cover on uh, office hours tomorrow night so no no we'll, we'll do it on monday we okay, just cool. we just have bad sound and i apologize to no everybody. i understand no problem at all brother yeah thank you all i apologize for the sound Bye. quality uh, uh i'm david feldman sorry once again for the sound remember to stay strong and protect the weak <laughs>